Hey guys, it's Colton. Just wanted to hit you with a disclaimer right at the top of the show and let you guys know that, uh, unfortunately, with our upcoming conversation that you're about to listen to on Shigeru Miyazuki's Kitaro, our special guest, Zach Davison's audio, came back less than ideal. And this is not me like blaming Zach or anything. I obviously don't blame him because these things just happen. Um, but you will notice that, you know, Zach's audio does start out pretty okay. And uh, you can hear him and understand what he's saying just fine. But as the conversation goes on, uh, his audio starts to become more and more inaudible somehow. Like like he's like he's like backing away from his from his microphone, like as he's talking and he's talking like on the other side of his room or something. Which I don't think that's what he was doing, obviously, but that's just the way his audio came back. So there are going to be some portions of the conversation where he doesn't really sound as audible, unfortunately. And I did my best to kind of like edit around and work around those parts as best I can. But, you know, basically my disclaimer is that there were just some portions of the conversation that I just kind of had to cut out due to the fact that as hard as I tried, like I, I couldn't really make certain portions of Zach's audio any more audible or any more listenable, whatever you want to call it. I I, cu I couldn't really do much with some of Zach's audio. I just kind of had to cut out some parts, which is unfortunate. I normally trim the fat on these podcasts anyway, otherwise they'd be so much longer and filled with a lot more dead air or lulls in the conversation, whatever you want to call them. But um, yeah, so I just wanted to be upfront and transparent about that. And I apologize for how some of Zach's audio turned out. But when and if, you know, Zach ends up being on the show again, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll make sure this doesn't happen again. I just really wanted to apologize uh, for how his audio turned out because uh, as you'll hear in the podcast, we were all really looking forward to this conversation and uh, it was a lot of fun. I didn't really want to just, you know, throw away another podcast as we've done in the past due to huge audio issues. Um, but um, you know, blame blame that gosh darn audio yokai that got a hold of Zach's audio and uh, uh, decided to do what they saw fit. Um, but anyway, yeah, just wanted to be upfront with you guys about that. Again, I apologize, but uh, you know, sometimes these things happen. It's no one's. It, like I said, it's it's no one else's fault. Zach, if you're listening, I promise I'm not blaming you for anything. But it's just how it turned out. Technical issues happen all the time, especially on this show. Um, but I think that's enough apologizing up front. Now, uh, please enjoy this episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 180. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lauren Ramiyasha. And today we are slumbered on a bed in the morning with a zzzzzz because it's so fun. Because on the show, we are talking about yokai and the wonderful world of yokai, especially as imagined by 
Manga Master Shigeru Mizuki in his iconic, culturally defining series, Kitaro. And we have a great bevy of guests joining us to discuss this classic series, including none other than our good friend, the Eisner-nominated comics artist of Ghost Hog and Merman, Joey Weiser. Returning guest after a nearly five-year hiatus, KC Minovsky article. And, of course, we are so happy to have had on translator for the Katara series, Zach Davison, an expert in all things yokai, yuri, and especially Shigeru Mizuki. And it was such a fantastic conversation on Katara. We had a lot to say and we, you know, didn't even, as per usual with our conversations, we could have kept going on because there is so much depth into the world of Shigeru Mizuki's life and the world he created through Katara and his characters to talk about. And we just had such a blast celebrating and discussing this classic series just one of the really most fun horror comedy comics you can read out there and like it's such great time to dig into the work of mizuki on the show as well we finally got the tetsuka and now we finally did mizuki so we had quite a great pair of horror related classic comics by some of the old-time great mangaka uh, for this halloween season for you guys and yeah it was a real blast to do this one Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was one hell of a conversation. You know, like you said, not just in length, but like, uh, I think this might be like our most uh, stacked episode in terms of like how many high profile guests we have on at one time, or at least one of them. I was uh, I was definitely very excited to have this conversation. And I'm so glad we could have all three of them on at the same time. It just it just felt very special. And I really enjoyed reading Kitaro. And yeah, I, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. But before we get into that, it's time for another patron shout out. And we want to th- uh, give a special thanks to a uh, new patron, Eric, uh, who signed up for our Patreon recently. So Eric, if you're listening, shout out to you. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. Uh, we appreciate yours and everyone's patronage over there. I believe Eric actually sent in a question on Twitter, or at least he they sent in uh, one of our questions on Twitter. I forget if we read it or not, because I feel like we kind of grouped a lot of Twitter questions at the end together for the sake of time. But we do want to thank you also for uh, sending in a Twitter question as well. And, and as well as thank you to everybody who sent in a Twitter question, just to kind of put it out there. We got a lot of great response when we put out the call for questions this one. A lot of great questions, a lot of great shares. So A lot of engagement. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having the enthusiasm, Katara. That's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. But uh, once again, thank you, Eric, so much for signing up for our Patreon. And yeah, uh, you know, for those who don't know, uh, when you sign up for our Patreon at any tier, uh, you will get a shout out on the show and our thanks, our eternal thanks at any tier you sign up. And that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, please sign up if you're interested. Uh, you know, we go over all this at the end of the show, but it really helps us kind of keeps the lights on, keep our podcast up. Uh, I also just want to shout out someone who's returned to our Patreon, Foggle. Uh, you know, we're longtime friends from the Animation Revelation forums, and I just wanted to shout him out like, oh, thank you so much for your support. That really, really means a lot, man. But yeah, like every bit helps. So we really want to thank all our patrons for continuing to support us. No, thank you so much, guys. We, we really can't thank you enough. But yes, 
Um, I don't think we have anything else to talk about at the top of the show, so I think we should uh, we should start uh, putting in our letters in the Yokai Post and and wait for our friends, our guests, to show up for our discussion of Kitaro. Yep, it's time to clip clop down to mountains to meet them and uh, discuss and immerse ourselves in all things Yokai. <laughs> That's right, finally, we are going to be talking about Shigeru Mizuki's magnum opus, the classic yokai manga, the iconic character, and we have a great panel of guests joining us today, including returning guest, the Eisner-nominated Joey Weiser. Hey, thanks for having me again. Absolutely, especially with your love of monsters, you know, we gotta have you on for this one. Oh yeah, yeah, I love this comic. Mm. And we also have, returning on the show for the first time in a long while, five years since our last appearance with them, Casey Minofsky article. Hi. Uh, the insects are singing my song of victory, uh, and my <laughs> and my five-year hibernation cycle is over. I am here, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about Kitaro, and I'm excited to uh, continue on the Nizumi Otoko Respect Army. Oh, absolutely. And especially after we did briefly uh, bring up Kataro and Mizuki's horror comics, like in our horror manga pod, which you all that long ago, we had to have you on for this one, especially as someone who's just such a big horror enthusiast, comics, films, everything. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we, we had uh, discussed doing a Kitaro episode for, I think, about five years. So <laughs> there, there, there was a standing invite that whenever this topic came up, I would show up. So here we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so great to have you. And it's so great to have the translator for the Katara series and so many other Shigeru Mizuki's works, as well as the works of several other classic veteran mangaka like Go Nagai, Satoshi Kon, Leiji Matsumoto. We have translator Zach Davison joining us today. Hey everyone, very excited to be here. And definitely if there was a Kitaro podcast and I wasn't invited onto it, I would, um, you know... <laughs> give you a little side on to that side on that so thanks for having me <laughs> i mean it really would be a crime if we didn't at least invite right. you on <laughs> no absolutely not invite zach yeah so glad I yeah let's talk about kitaro is one of my favorite things in the world absolutely and you literally have written books on yure yokai you are an expert enthusiast in all things japanese folklore as well as the biggest advocate of Shigeru Mizuki. So we're so happy to have you on the show today to talk about Kitaro. And yeah, I think where we should start today is basically our relationship to the Kitaro series and Shigeru Mizuki's work in general. And I think we'll start with you, Zach, because you'll have 
perhaps the oldest history with the work and you are in large part responsible with bringing Mizuki's work and the guitar series over to be translated overseas. So yeah, like regalus with like, what is your f- exposure to Mizuki and the guitar series? And then like, what really drew you into the world of yokai that he brought to life? Sure. Um, I mean, my experience with Kitaro is, it's I mean, it's a really interesting story. I think for me, um, it just because of how much it changed my life. But a lot of it was just so. To give you the, my backstory, I went to Japan in 2001 on the JET program. And if you're not familiar with the JET program, the JET program is basically a way for people interested in Japan to go work in live and work in Japan um, for a year. And you work for the government. You generally, I don't know, you guys, theoretically, you teach English, although everyone that has been on the JET program knows that the actual teaching of English is not a huge part of it. Uh, you <laughs> sit in a classroom and repeat words and everything, and I wouldn't want to call what actual teachers do, um, you know, compared to what actual teachers do. But anyways, so I went over to Japan. I'd never been to Japan before. It, I went there kind of on a whim. Um, I was like 33 years old. I was working at a little office in Amazon as a, like a project manager, and I just wasn't very content with I was like is this all I ever get to do out of life I've always been interested in Japan you know I'm gonna go so I quit my job and I jumped a plane on a plane I'm like well I'll stay there for like a year and then I ended up staying there for about eight years so mm-hmm. one of the things that was a real shocker when I got to Japan is that the Japan that I thought I knew was very very different than the actual Japan um, and I think that almost everyone that goes to Japan especially everyone goes there for a long period of time they have that sort of moment where you get off the plane and especially for someone like me, because I would always thought of myself as like a Japan guy, right? You know, like I read the manga, I watched the anime, I ate the sushi. I mean, and even back then when this stuff wasn't that popular, but I still considered myself to be pretty knowledgeable about Japan. And then I get over there and I found out that the Japan I know is not the Japan that Japan really is. It's this weird Western interpretation of Japan and like the series that are super popular in the West are completely unheard unheard of over in Japan, right? Like nobody knew what Cowboy Bebop was, for example. You know, I tried to like bond with some people over anime and it was, it was really kind of a shock for me because I found like a lot of the series that I really loved and a lot of stuff that I thought was really interesting, you know, was actually for children in Japan. You know, I'd be like talking to students, like high school students. I'm like, oh yeah, I love Neon, you know, Neon Genesis Evangelion. They're like, oh yeah, my five-year-old brother is super into that, you know? And it, <laughs> seriously, um, it's such a different, there's so, the real Japan and I guess our opinion, our illusion, our anime manga Japan is just so shockingly different. And one of the biggest shocks for me was that there was this character that was absolutely everywhere, right? It was just everywhere. Um, And it was clearly just a massively popular character in Japan. And I had never even heard of him. I had no idea who he was. And that was Kitaro. I mean, Kitaro stuff was just all over when I was there. And granted, when I managed to land, Japan was going through its occasional Kitaro booms that it's gone through. You know, like any character, it'll fade into and, you know, come back out. But Kitaro really was just like, it was so fascinating for me. Because it was like the comparison that like, imagine you are a Japanese person that is super into American animation. You love American animation. You think it's the coolest thing in the world. And then you come over to America and you've never heard of Walt Disney. I mean, it was that big of a game. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Because Mizuki Shigeru and Kitaro in Japan is just a cultural milestone. It goes beyond 
popularity. I mean, you can't really say that it's a popular character. It goes to the extent where if you aren't familiar with Katado, you really don't know uh, like this vast chunk of Japanese culture because it is just one of the grand um, pillars that culture is built onto. And so it was just a shock for me. And I was like, I got to know who the hell this guy is. Like, who is this weird little one-eyed kid in the striped vest? And I mean, I didn't speak any Japanese at the time, much less be able to read it, but I studied it. And Kitada was really kind of like, it was the carrot that kept me at my studies because I really wanted to read it and I really wanted to know more. And it looked so fascinating. And the more I was able to read and the more I was able to get into it, I realized that Mizuki Shigeru is not just a comic artist. I mean, he is, I think, one of the few true geniuses to ever work in the comics medium. I mean, just his life, his work, his art, you know, like all of it was just this vast ocean. And I, I could just absorb as much as I could. And I realized that I would never be able to absorb it all because it was too great and he was too great. But I just became like this absolute Mizuki apostle, uh, you know, or evangelist, I guess, you know, whichever term you want to use. But it was just, I was so fascinated by him. Um, and then, you know, like I really, really wanted to bring Mizugi to the West because it seemed astounding to me that someone so integral, so important to Japanese culture had no presence in English. We didn't even know who the guy was and yeah. never heard of it. It was <laughs> insane to me. Um, so like I actually one night got really drunk at one of my friend's bars um, and I climbed up on a table and I waved my fist in the air and I shouted, I shall be the one to bring Mizuki Shigeru to the West. You know, like, <laughs> make it my holy mission. Um, and so then I got back to the U.S. and I tried for years. You know, I tried like knocking on all these publishers' doors, you know, um, but it was just a no, no, no. And that's not atypical in the publishing industry. You have to hear a lot, a lot of no's until someone finally says yes, you know. I then eventually got hooked up with Drawn and Quarterly, and, you know, that's basically how that whole journey ended. And I fulfilled my vow, shouted out at my friend's bar one night in Osaka. <laughs> nice. Indeed. I mean, there's you know, so much more to dig into there, but, like, yeah, it's so incredible. Like, it's been basically 10 years since Mizuki's first was perf published in English, went onwards to our noble debts. And, yeah, now... Here we are a decade later, and there are like 16 different books of his published. We have like such a great collection of stories from Kataro. Like across the eight books, we have 50 stories that, you know, I, I wrote, remember hearing this uh, story from other interviews with them that you approached Mizuki with like, hey, like what are the stories that he asked, like what were the stories that you wanted to do from the guitar series? And then you sent a list of 50 and he crossed off one and said, okay, there you go. But then you, you worked in the, the one he crossed off anyway, Datsuibaba. He actually gave me a test. That was one of the funny mm -hmm. things about Mizuki. And I lo like, I loved actually being able to interact with Mizuki, but he was like, because one of the reasons I found out that his work hadn't really been represented in the West, part of it was because Mizuki just didn't care. Like he, mm. He wasn't writing comics for Americans. He was writing comics for Japanese people. So there was no excitement from his point of view of getting his work into English. I um, mean, it just it didn't matter to him, you know. So he also felt very strongly that his entire work be represented, right? Because he said that publishers in the past had approached him basically, you know, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to cherry pick the sort of like marketable few things and put those up for sale. And Mizuki 
want that. You know, he wanted someone. He's like, if you're gonna do this, then you're gonna take everything. You know, you're gonna you're gonna show who I am as an artist, <clears throat> not just grab a few <clears throat> marketable things and um, sell those over. So he actually like gave me this little challenge. He's like, you know, put together a list of the fifty Kitado stories you would like to do, and from that list, I will know if you know my work. Uh, and so I had to send him this list, and it was like, oh great, this is all it. I, uh, I'm going to send this list to Mizuki Shigeru, he's going to read it, and it all hinges on this one moment. And he did. He sent it back, you know, with, he crossed out one, he's like, alright, this one sucks, but you can have the rest of them. And we did <laughs> Later, put the one that he said sucked back in, and I was like, I wonder if he's going to notice that this is going in the book. And he's like, nope, he didn't say it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't, I think, that it's that he thought it sucked so much. I just think that he being Mizuki had to be a little bit imperious. Like he couldn't accept the list as is. That would have, yeah, you know, <laughs> he had to like show his pen that he was paying attention there. And yeah, he was great though. I mean, working with Mizuki, I mean, I never really got to work with him. I met him once in Kyoto, uh, very, very briefly. And this was before I did any work with him, but, and I didn't get to work with him directly because, you know, I mean, I was 93 years old, but I would pass over emails and they would go to Mizuki and then he would get me, I would get his answers written back. and um, But I've done a lot of work with his family, and they're just super wonderful and just a great bunch to work with. And I think they've all been very happy with how we've presented um, their father in English. I wonder, I've seen you mention this process of kind of combing over the whole series and, and picking out which ones, you know, and sending them over to Mizuki. And I don't know if this is like too difficult to put into words, but I'm curious, like what kind of qualities you were looking for in the stories and like what made you pick one versus the other and things like that? Uh, I think I was looking for, you know, like I really wanted his period. So Mizuki, like a lot of artists, has definitely had his golden period you know there's parts where like the early Hakama Kitaro stuff um I've had a lot of people say why don't you do Hakama Kitaro you know and I'm like most people have seen Hakama who say that I don't think they've ever actually seen Hakama Kitaro mm -hmm. it's not good. it's not <laughs> his art is crude his he's still trying to figure out how he is he's still coming to grips with um you know relearning how to draw and everything you know from post-war um and it's just not really there and then there's this period where he started doing Kitaro where he just was, everything was gold. You know, it was just perfect. Bang, bang, bang. And just like a lot of ideas and a lot of just manic genius was being brought to it. That's followed by, I think, like a lot of artists had that have success with the character where they get a little bored of the character. You know, most of the work was being passed off to assistants. Um, he would probably just do like some pretty much basic plots and, uh, you know, some rough outlines and everything else. And so I wanted the work that I thought was really in Mizuki's Golden Married, where he is doing the work on the page. It's all of his ideas. You know, it's basically the best part of Kitado. And that's what I pulled from. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I got in a lot of, I guess, his famous stories, because I figured this might be it for work that's coming into English, you know, and we may never get to do any more. And so why not do the absolute best. So, you know, I wanted to make sure. That, and also the other thing is that a lot of his, um, like, you know, because a lot of people know, things through the anime um, and they don't realize how rare those characters are in the book itself like <laughs> i certainly didn't know that going in yeah yeah neko musume only one story in these books yeah that's the one story she appears in um <laughs> and so i wanted to make sure i had that in there i wanted to make sure that i had you know like his real classics like the great tanuki war which is what 
really propelled Mizuki to success. You know, he went from obscurity to success with the great Tanuki War. Um, and just a bunch of them that were just, I don't know, just stuff I liked, really. Stuff that was weird, stuff that was funky, um, stuff that showcased a wide variety of monsters and styles. Yeah, I never think you picked a really great eclectic collection of stories that show off like different ranges in the Kitaro canon of it's like the different types of stories over like this select period of the golden age of the late 60s, early 70s. So I enjoyed it a lot. And definitely like, you know, from my knowledge of like the most recent anime picture and what stories they drew from, like I definitely could recognize like, oh yeah, so these are like some of the foundation points for like these characters and stories that have kind of been built up and reiterated, retold over and over because they're, they were really popular and very formative. And it's interesting to read the series too to see like how that kind of core group uh, and the core cast of Kitaro kind of forms. Like kind of the the main core characters in most of the animations, I think kind of became fully formed with the Western yokai fight arc with, you know, that's where, like, because the characters Katara chooses to fight the Western Yokai in that arc, Senkake Baba, Kanaki, Gigi, Itan Momen, Nurikabe, like, those are kind of all the, the core cast of characters that have been in every Katara show since then. So I thought that was really interesting to, like, look and see, oh, here's kind of the development of, like, him starting to form, like, hey, here are some of the most important recurring characters in the Katara universe over time. But then, of course, the the main focus, the main trio is just Kitaro and Madama YG and, of course, Nizumi Otoko, which, like, those are the three core characters in every Kitaro story. Before we get on too much further, I do want to hear from uh, Casey and Joey. Uh, Casey, if you want to go next. Uh, sure. Um, I had an early encounter with Kitaro, but I, I had no idea what it was that I was watching because my I had a cousin, uh, the cousin I often attribute into getting me into anime, who was something of a tape trader. Like he would lit- he would import VHS tapes. I don't know what his source was. I've always assumed it was like a Japanese pen pal or something because uh, this was very pre-internet. Like we're talking like 1991, maybe. Uh, so he was also my source for like Japanese deathmatch wrestling and things like that. Uh, mm. That's who showed me these things. But I remember he had a VHS tape, and on that tape were three anime that I knew nothing about. And they were also my earliest indicators that some of the cartoons I was watching were coming from Japan at all. Uh, so on that tape were Lupin the uh, Third, one of the 70s uh, renditions. Um, Dokanjo Keru, uh, the obnoxious frog. Ah, oh, cool. And an old, old episode of Kitaro. I, at this point, like, my memory tells me it's one of the, like, 1960s black and white cartoons. But again, mm. all in Japanese, no subtitles. So, like, for probably 10 years or more, I never saw that character again. But I remembered the look of him. You know, I remembered the look of what was going on. I could not tell you what was in that episode anymore. It is such a distant memory of like just thing you see when you're six or seven that leaves an impression. Uh, but the image of Kitaro himself was something that had stuck firmly with me. And probably because, you know, as as a kid about that age, like my haircut had gradually evolved to like I was one of those kids with like the one eyeball <laughs> concealed by <my> hair. <laughs> like that was kind of my look. So I, I saw a little bit of how I liked to carry myself once I evolved past the, uh, the bowl cut that like all the kids my age back then had. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I always wanted to know more about who this character was. Um, the other thing that really connected me with, once I found out more about Kitaro and once I had other, you know, the internet became more of a thing you could start 
finding out about things that you vaguely remembered. But one of the other things that really drew me into uh, Kitaro in particular uh, and Mizuki's work was I was really into folklore monsters. I, I would get any book I could find at the library about legends, mythology, any part of the world I could find them from. Uh, and one of the big uh, moments for me really getting deep into Mizuki's manga was the uh, re- release uh, of Drawn and Quarterly's Nan Nanba. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a very personal connection because Nan Nanba is the semi-autobiographical account of the old woman who told uh, Mizuki all of these ghost stories that inspired his later works. Uh, and similarly, I was raised by my grandmother who... Uh, was this mountain woman from West Virginia who would tell me all of these ghost stories, some of which were, you know, pieces of folklore and some of which I can find no record of. So presumably they just happened to her or she swears they did. Uh, but she would tell me all these, you know, encounters with like ghosts and monsters and things out in the woods of West Virginia. So that left a huge impression on me and got me deeper into horror. So when I read Nan Nanba, I, I felt that personal connection and also that connection to, you know, just the ghost stories of another corner of the world that I didn't have access to. Uh, so that really pulled me in. And uh, eventually I was able to read all these other Kitaro books and all these other Mizuki books that have since come out. I started importing, you know, other like art books from, you know, French publications or Japanese publications and things. And yeah, it's just led me to a much deeper and fonder appreciation of Mizuki as an artist and a chronicler of folklore. That's wonderful that you had kind of a similar connection to being regaled and having like former experience like hearing ghosts from your own grandmother in the same way Mizuki did and really able to have a connection to Nanamba in that way. Absolutely. That's really awesome. I guess, uh, Joey, if you want to go next. Yeah, you know, I was, I was thinking back on this and I don't remember exactly the first time I saw Kitaro, but I imagine it's probably was like in the mid 2000s when I was uh, in college and getting really interested in kind of the history of manga and anime. And, and, and like Zach was saying, like discovering that there were all these series that I'd never heard of that were huge uh, in Japan. But one of my earliest memories for sure is coming across a piece of Kitaro fan art on Craig Thompson's blog. Uh, of all places. Uh, Craig Thompson, the author of uh, Blankets and Goodbye Chunky Rice, uh, amongst lots of other stuff, uh, had a blog, you know, back in the day when everybody had blogs. And it was mostly like process and sketches and things like that. But one day he did post like a piece of fan art for Kitaro and was said like, I'm really getting into this guy Shigeru Mizuki's artwork and was talking about how he got some books of his and things like that. And I definitely remember seeing that and being like, this looks awesome. Like, I got (laughs) to know what this is. And, uh, you know, trying to research it was tough in that time period. There wasn't a lot of information about it in English. And there wasn't a lot of like, there was no like fan translated manga or anything like that. So the yeah, I think my earliest like real exposure to it was through the anime, like through finding bits and pieces of the episodes. Like, um, I don't remember if we said this up top, but like there's been an anime adaptation of the series every like at least once every decade. Uh, And so, you know, I I got to see kind of bits that like a few episodes here and there. uh, However, I could kind of scrape them together. But like the bulk of that was all through the 80s series, which uh, did actually run on Hawaiian television with English subtitles. And back in the day, people like recorded those and have shared the tapes and recordings of the tapes and things like that. So I saw a lot of that 80s series. And and that really kind of cemented my idea of like what the characters were like and stuff like that. 
And then as for the manga, like it was kind of hard to come by, uh, but I did, uh, there were these three volumes of uh, bilingual editions that were published by Kodansha um, in the, I think, early 2000s, maybe even late 90s, that uh, were kind of hard to come by, but I managed to get all three of them uh, without, you know, paying too much. And uh, the manga was like really interesting to see because it is very different uh, from the anime. Like the anime is a lot more like kind of straightforward action adventure and the manga kind of goes <laughs> in a lot of weird places. And <laughs> and I remember being like really fascinated by it and thinking it was really cool, but still kind of not really just kind of assuming it wasn't ever going to come out in English uh, until John and Corley started publishing some of his other work, um, like we mentioned. And I was really excited about that, but then Kitaro didn't really seem like the kind of stuff that John and Corley publishes a lot of the time. But then they did. They published that big uh, orange book uh, first. And I remember uh, seeing it at San Diego Comic-Con, like, I don't know, a few weeks before it was going to hit stores. And I have this kind of policy at conventions where I tend to not buy any books that I can get at a bookstore unless I'm like buying it directly from the author. But in this case, I was just like, I got to get this. <laughs> you know? And it was like the easiest purchase I've ever made. Like I just immediately picked it up, gave the guy money and then was carrying that brick of a book around with me all weekend. And it was really exciting. And then and then those, uh, you know, those smaller books came out and I, I devoured all those as well and uh, have become a pretty huge fan. Like Mizuki is definitely one of my favorite manga authors, uh, favorite cartoonists, uh, period, these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I can definitely tell that now having read Stu Mizuki's uh, Old Guitar, I can definitely see a lot of influences uh, of his work in Ghost Hog in particular. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I, I love, like, I, I, I've said this when I talk about Ghost Hog, but I love, like, ghost stories and creature stories and things like that that aren't, like, actually, like, super scary. I just kind of like hanging out with monsters kind of, you know, and I think uh, Kitaro has a lot of that where it's it's very laid back uh, a lot of the time, but like you still get the cool creatures and things like that. And uh, I think that's a quality that I try to put into my work somewhat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the opening lyrics of the anime are all about how much fun it is to hang out with these monsters. Mm-hmm. These yokai, <laughs> yeah. you know, ghosts don't have school or tests or anything. You know? <laughs> uh, they can just have fun all day. Um, just to kind of get into my short history really quickly. You know, I, I do want to kind of thank but both Zach and uh, ANN cast actually for because I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I was probably aware of Kitara before then, but I hadn't really, like, really looked into the character or the manga or anything before then. But, uh, you know, after listening to Zach's appearance on ANN cast, obviously, rest in peace, Zach Birchie, you know, I made sure to look this up. But I think about two days after I listened to that podcast, I went ahead and ordered that pilot volume of Kitaro. Mm. Uh, because I was just so interested in it. And yeah, I, I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't, I hadn't like really opened it up until we were uh, getting ready for the show today. So this was my <laughs> first time kind of reading through. I've, I've literally read through everything that John and Quarterly has put out at this point. And, uh, I don't know what I really was expecting going in, but, uh, I think it's what we were just saying earlier. Like it's, I was a little surprised that like the actual comic, uh, and I, maybe some people feel differently, I don't know, but uh, it wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily like scary. Like there were definitely yokai in there that like did kind of give me the creeps every once in a while. But most of the time, you know, like we were saying, it is a pretty laid back comic of Kitaro mostly just kind of hanging out with all these yokai and d- helping out people in need and whatnot. It was, it was a lot more laid back than I was expecting most of the time. But uh, I have to say, I, 
you know, uh, as someone who didn't really know what he was getting himself into going in, I, I really enjoyed at least like 90% of it. It was very good. I mean, that's a great point. Like, I would never classify Kitaro as a horror comic at all. I mean, I yeah. mm. some people call it that, but like, I actually, what I normally tell people is that Kitaro, think of it as like a folklore comic, like Hellboy. Like, Hellboy is a great comic, but no one's scared reading Hellboy, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's horror in the same way, like, a show like Grim Adventures of Billy Mandy or Ariel Monsters is, like, horror. Like, it, it <laughs> has, like, much. monsters, and it's, like, uh, about, like, these creepy, gooey creatures, but it's, like, it's more of a com- it's more focused on comedy or, like, adventure. It's, it's relatively safe engagement with, like, macabre elements without actually being mm-hmm. frightening. <laughs> yeah. I can see why kids would be into this, honestly. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I guess just to go into my brief history is that um, I had a lot of awareness of Mizuki and Kitaro from like early on in my like, I had a period where I really wanted to get into like a lot of classic authors. So there was a period where I was really getting into a lot of Tezuka and Ishinomori and Yoshiro Tatsumi and stuff. And then Mizuki was on the list and I picked up a bunch of uh, his stuff that was out from Drawn and Quarterly. Based on like, uh, I had like a third edition of Showa. So I would have to say that it was probably between the period when I was in college up to 2016. But then I hadn't really uh, delved much deeper into it since then. So this was also my first time kind of reading through all the Kitaro series after only like dabbling in uh, the first couple volumes a few years ago. And then having seen, uh, I, hadn't, I didn't end up watching all of the 2018 anime, but I had checked in on episodes of it as it was airing and there was a lot of conversation about it from like folks I followed so I would check out like really interesting standout episodes so that also increased my like awareness of a guitar and stuff so yeah like I after like reading through like all of Kitaro and then reading through Nononba and the Tonomonkari adaptation he did like I, I basically Zyokai comics like I'm really big fan of Mizuki's work and it's just art and storytelling and now I'm kind of on a Mizuki high to want to continue on to his like war comics next like I have all the all of his other stuff right on my desk so I'm probably gonna dig into that uh, in the next week few weeks or so but yeah like I can have this like big fan of Mizuki and especially like you know with my familiarity with this it was interesting because we did Dororo recently on the show and Dororo was very much Tezuka's response to Mizuki in terms of creating like a yokai story sort of like kind of darker themes and monsters and stuff so it's interesting to compare that series with Kitaro and then like see well and as opposed to Tezuka's approach of like trying to make a more serious action story like Mizuki's comics are like just very playful and fun and how he reinterpreted and reinvented these features like they're a bunch of scheming monsters who are like trying to drink people's blood or eat people or stuff like that I'm like it's all in good fun it's all very satirical and Kataru dies so much in this series <laughs> so many <laughs> he gets maimed he gets like turned into puddles and goops but he always bounces back. There's a story in which like he gets lost in time or something and there's no resolution to that. I guess he just comes back the next chapter. <laughs> it's just great. You just love... <laughs> there's a funny story about that particular um, episode itself when he gets lost in time and space because that was Mizuki's attempt at basically Reichenbach following Sherlock Holmes, right? He was so sick <laughs> that he literally just like, alright, that's it. I'm done with Kitaro. He's lost in time and space. You'll never see him again. <laughs> 
And it is like if you notice in the book, um, I think it's in the translation that we did too. It's one of the few stories in Kitaro that actually ends with the end at the end, right? Because most are like you know to be continued, to be continued. But that would be just be saying, "I'm so fucking sick of Kitaro. He's gone." And of course, someone's like, "No!" And so he comes back. <laughs> never explained it. <laughs> he's just here's Kitaro again, walking down the street. I mean, theoretically, if he's in the past, he could just kind of exist until he gets back to mm. the future. <laughs> Like, Dororo is one of my favorite things because um, I don't know if they translated this in the English version, but um, Tezuka wrote, like, a little introduction to the series himself in one of the expanded volumes where he was talking about how his ego would not allow him to believe that someone could be better than he was. And Mm. Tezuki was eclipsing Tezuka in popularity. And so Tezuka was just like, you know what? I am Osamu Tezuka. I'm going to out Mizuki Mizuki. <laughs> and it failed. And he was he was good enough to admit defeat and just basically say that, yeah, no, Mizuki is is a superior artist to me in terms of um, doing these types of comics. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to say, though, somewhere in the English translation of Dororo, I believe there is a piece where a character comments like, what is this, a Mizuki comic? Like... Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Emily just just Tezuka's ego not allowing him to think that anyone could possibly be better than he was. <laughs> Can't help himself, <laughs> but add those little meta jokes in in his comics. Yeah, when it comes to stories about Japanese folk tales, tales of yokai or like Shikuzuki, uh, Mizuki is definitely like the master of that. One of the things that I mean, one of the things that makes Mizuki's work is that it's not just folklore; it actually has. His work has a, a really got a lot of depth to it, you know, um, which mm-hmm. things that people maybe they miss when they're just looking at the monsters themselves. But it's almost entirely social commentary. There's an immense amount of philosophy in the works. Uh, Mizuki was was brilliant. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. Um, and he studied the works like of the philosopher Goethe. And there's even books written in Japanese about how basically... Kitaro is the philosopher Gerte's work in comic book farm called Gegege Gerte is the book. There's massive amounts of just like deep cuts and allusions in there. I remember I was doing, so I do these, um, these translation battles with a Harvard professor um, who is Murakami's professor, Murakami's translator, um, Jay. And he was talking about how one of these pages of Mizuki's, it's like just this casual throwaway line and it's a reference to an ancient no play and all of his stuff is like that like there's just you know um there's just so many deep little levels in there that you know you can read it one way um you know you can read it one way and you can read the sort of like funky monster stuff and then depending on how much back knowledge you bring to the work itself like if you're jay rubin and you have a immense knowledge of no theater then you start to see more <laughs> layers and if you're someone who has familiarity with world philosophers you see more layers you know and it's just there's so much going on in a mizuki comic that is beyond the surface story and i think that's one of the things that that makes him brilliant and makes his comic books so much greater than tezuka's dororo because tezuka was just doing a yokai comic i mean mizuki one thing he will never do is just do a yokai comic like literally every single comic i don't think he has the capacity to simply go in and do light entertainment i don't think he has it in him yeah, no, there's so much pungent, like, social commentary and also philosophizing in the series, for sure. And I think that definitely comes from Mizuki's really incredible, like, 
life experiences. Like, obviously, we talked about, you know, he served in the war. He was, his platoon was, like, pretty much nearly all wiped out. And then he lost his arm. And then he ended up kind of living with a tribe on uh, Baba New Guinea for a little while and had a long-standing relationship with the people there that he wrote about in the manga as well, like, you know, I think in the early 90s or stuff. But yeah, in addition to that, like, he had so many other odd jobs that he did, like, after he came back from the war, like, as a pedicab service he did, he was a fishmonger. And then, of course, he had, like, this tradition with the, the he did Kami Shibai to start with before he even uh, went into manga. That's where he, like, first experimented with, like, the idea of doing the Kitaro character, which, like, you wrote about in uh, the, the really great, like, history of Kitaro forwards in each book that you know he didn't originate this sort of the folk tale of Kitaro uh, that was someone else but like he Masami Ito is the person who created the yeah. character yeah illustrated by uh, Keio Tatsumi mm-hmm. yeah and that was just like a, a Kamishibai character that then Mizuki kind of just asked permission to make you know a comic version of when he got into rental manga then further refined kind of created the iconic interpretation of that character when like he started getting serialized in the major magazines like Shonen magazine so yeah like it's it's really interesting because i mean i i re- this is another anecdote i remember you mentioning before but like mizuki obviously because there's war experience he's like a difficult life experience so, like he kind of knows also like what it means to like live in hardships what it means to like truly starve like so you can see that empathy he has for downtrodden oppressed peoples in these stories and that comes across in his social commentary and his critique of, like, Japanese politics and bureaucracy. And, like, we have so many examples of stories where we have, like, these politicians are, like, they all try and pay off Qatar and say, and Qatar just refuses because he will very humbly, like, just go out to help people. But he doesn't, like, you know, he won't be paid off for it. And, uh, and we see a lot of, when it comes to, like, military services or pro- political uh, figures they'll try and defeat yukai by like throwing like weapons at them throwing all sorts of money at them and it's very clear anti-war like anti like nuclear weapon commentary in so many of those stories like the tanuki war the story with Siogalodon, the giant kaiju monster which also so interesting that's like this is kind of a prototypical giant monster giant robot battle that's one of those things um i don't know if many people actually know this or not but i always think it's a fascinating bit of mizuki lore is that he actually created the giant monster versus giant robot battle he was the first person to ever draw that wow oh wow Mm -hmm. which he then because he's also mizuki like one of the great things i love about mizuki is that as he would call himself uh, you know the very lazy person he liked to talk about how lazy he was and he certainly did not mind at all recycling stories. You know, he was like, <laughs> and it was, it was popular. Why not tell it again here? You know, so he recycled um, the monster Laban into a, because it was originally a Godzilla comic that he basically was paid to do a licensed comic. And so he created this, um, you know, what would eventually morph into what they call Mechagodzilla or that sort of style now. <laughs> but that's a Mizuki creation. So things, that's one of the other things I talked about earlier is like Mizuki's, influence on the world is so amazing that most people don't even know they're seeing Mizuki influence, right? Like if you go to see the film Pacific Rim, you're, it doesn't immediately spring to mind. It's like, oh, this is Mizuki Shigeru's work. But it is, you know, because that came originally from his brain. It seems normal. 
Well, now it's like, oh, but yeah, but of course giant monsters fight Jorma Roach. Yeah, <laughs> because we've seen so much of it. But Mizuki was the first person ever to put that chocolate to that particular peanut butter and have those two. <laughs> Amazing. And and that story is very popular. Like that's at least two of the animated films are that story. And in like the series where often it's just like one shots, a lot of times that's a like two parter and stuff like that, just because there's more story in it. And I think that story is really great because outside of the fact that it's like a fun kaiju versus robot story, it does have a lot of like uh, interesting drama between he, him and the, the scientist you know, and, and, and you really dig into this kind of like scientist with a sort of insecurity problem. <laughs> who, oh, yeah. Uh, ends Boy, up... genius Yamada. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. one of the most interesting antagonists in the series. And like how, yeah, he's just so out of pride and ego. He's just so resentful that Kataro could possibly like steal any attention away from like his accomplishments that he tried to kill Kataro by like, injecting Zyogodon's blood into him and then like continues to try and cover it up cover it up even though like Kitaro has had such a long history of helping out his family but then he has kind of like a redemption towards the end which you know yeah he is like that was one of the most interesting antagonists because he had like an, an interesting arc to redemption there I thought but also it's a good story of again like commenting on kind of the hubris of like trying to control the natural world or trying to engineer like a literal weapons of destruction in order to solve the these problems or cover up these problems that are man-made so it's a very clever story on a lot of different fronts both like character narrative level and then on the social commentary level i guess what we're just kind of on the subject of uh you know, like our favorite like stories or whatever. I think I'm just kind of looking through all my books now. Uh, I think so far my two favorite stories do kind of involve like sort of meta qualities. Uh, w- one of them being uh, the-, the one story th- that involves uh, a-, a non-famous cartoonist that is definitely not <laughs> Tessica. Uh, yeah, Oberodoro versus Dracula is so good. I love the entire setup for that one, especially like the inclusion of that text. Yeah, is so funny. That's so good. Uh, and I also like the other one that I believe is in the second to last volume of the Drawn and Quarterly releases, if I remember correctly, where Mizuki is just a character that like goes to a cafe and he just runs in the Nezumi Otoko and Kitaro and he's like, oh, I created you. Like you, you guys should like come and stay in my house or whatever. <laughs> That's so good. I love that. I love how like weird and meta it gets in terms of like the giant, the yokai like coming into Mizuki's town, just taking over, and this giant cloud over him, and the military is like trying to figure out like should we nuke the, the people mm. to destroy all the yokai, <laughs> even if it'll cost lives if the two people remain there. But then it's a, the, like I love all that stuff, but I think my favorite part is just like the opening pages where it's like just Kitaro and Nezumi Otoko move in, and then like Nezumi Otoko just being like a real past and. And then at one moment, he just picks up their baby and he starts kissing it. It was really shocking. But then Mizuki's like, like, he's been eating horse poop. He should not be kissing our baby. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. And I love that the sort of meta element, like that Nezumi Otoko like kind of bounces through all of, not all of, but a lot of Mizuki's comics. Like he's kind of the narrator in the Showa books and, 
Uh, he pops up here and there. And I think that's a, a fun kind of like shared universe uh, of sorts without having to actually have rules about, uh, you know, <laughs> continuity and things like that. So uh, wait, uh, is this the time where we talk about the greatest character in all of literature, Nizumi Otoko? <laughs> I mean, we might as <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> I mean, I'm one of those things that I think probably most people, especially people that have read Kitaro, but maybe not all the listeners know, is that Nezumi Otoko is Mizugi Shigeru. Right, that is where mm. he oh, is wow. allowed to put his voice. Mm. Mizugi always said that. He's like Mizugi would always say, like you know, he hates Kitaro. I mean, he doesn't hate Kitaro. This <laughs> is like he's like Kitaro is such a sucker. Could you imagine like <laughs> just always being the good guy, never getting anything for yourself out of this, turning <laughs> money, you know? And he's like, you know, and I have heard the same thing often with. Um, with Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Uh, Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie and Poirot. <laughs> like, if you have one character that is connected to you, you come to resent them. Yeah. <laughs> but also the fact that, like, like, Walt Disney has said with Mickey Mouse is that if it's just Mickey Mouse, I have no story. You have to have Donald Duck messing up things and just being a jerk and doing stuff like that. <laughs> um, because only a good guy has no story. What are you going to do? Oh, it's a nice day. There's some flowers. Isn't it pretty out? And if Donald Duck doesn't drive through that flower bed on a car, then you have no story. Um, and <laughs> Toko is kind of the same way with, with Kitaro, right? Nezumi's job is that, you know, Kitaro is there to just be this boring embodiment of good. And then Nezumi gets to come in and basically be Mizuki's, um, you know, I know that there's a term for it in modern culture. I'm, there always is author insert. That's it. So Nezumi is essentially Mizuki's little author insert into his own story, saying what he would do in those exact same circumstances. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, I've I've definitely uh, had other people ask me like, why does Kitaro hang out with Nezumi Otoko? <laughs> like he's, he's he's tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Like, why don't they just kick him out of the group? And like, he defeats all the other bad yokai. Why doesn't he defeat Nezumi Otoko? And I just I think to a, a certain extent, it's just you know uh, you know for the structure of the comic to to exist. But like, I think in another way. A thing I really love about it is it kind of also represents this sort of like mysterious nature of the yokai. It's like Nezumi Otoko is kind of understood to be a bad guy. And that's just kind of like part of his character. But they all accept it. And I think that that's kind of beautiful in a way. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a specific story, like the Eret story at the end, like the politician is like trying to like punish Nizumi Otoko and Katara, like holds him back, even though in that story, Nizumi <laughs> Otoko like inspired with Eret to like, you know, liquefy him. <laughs> You <laughs> like try to flush Madame Oyachi on the toilet. <laughs> like, the, and Katara sits up for him at the end of the story saying, ah, let him be. You know, people like him make life more interesting. <laughs> I think Katara just appreciate that even if Nazumi Otoko is a troublemaker, he's an interesting person to have around. Mm. <laughs> he's part of the natural order. Like, friends that are just kind of jerks, and we're not quite sure why we're friends with them, but we've been friends with them so long that we just keep being friends with them. I mean, it seems like <laughs> yeah, people in my life where it's like, like my wife, like, oh, what are you doing? It's like, oh, you know, we're gonna play some games, and you know, blah blah is coming over, and then we all groan. She's like, if y'all dislike him so much, why do you invite him to everything? It's like, well, we've been inviting him for so long, we can't really just stop inviting him all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> it's one of those things, just 
it's a little, you know, it's a little spice in life to sometimes have people that are kind of jerks. And sometimes you're just friends with someone for so long that you just, out of sheer momentum, you keep hanging out with them. And I always think of that as Nezumi Otoko. <laughs> Definitely. You know, yeah, he's a jerk. And yeah, he's, you know, a scallion. But then, you know, he's actually got a good heart in a way, sometimes. <laughs> At times. <laughs> Every once in a while. I do just want to shout out my favorite moment really quickly where I, I think it's in the Kaminari story where Kitaro has his hair stolen and he's clearly like weak and hungry and he's like, hey, Nesumi Otoko, can I borrow, can I like borrow some money? And then he just starts beating the shit out of him and then spits <laughs> on him. Yeah, my favorite is when Kitaro has, gets the horse and then it's, this is how the story begins. The Kitaro's on the horse and then like Nesumi Otoko just hits him with a plank off the horse and just slaps him silly <laughs> and steals the horse. And then later he works the horse so much to, that it dies and they make it into like food. It's just, I just imagine like like music from It's Always Sunny playing in the background, the just like no, absolutely, just transition to the next scene. Yeah, Nezumi Otoko can't like bear to see Kitaro have something that he can't have, and yeah, but then once he has it, it's like he doesn't treat it well. Yeah, it's always yeah, and it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, very jealous and greedy, but also feels very hurt when he's excluded from anything, like even anything dangerous, like in the Yokai War story. He's like insulted that Katara won't bring him along with the rest of them to go fight the Western yokai. And then he gets brought along and makes everything worse. He gets hypnotized right away. Yeah, he's he's this wonderful avatar of universal pettiness. His pretense for betrayal is, the, is always the most paper-thin thing, but he also very opportunistically sees whenever the balance is shifting in the other direction. So whether it's for or against Kitaro, he will always pretend that was the side he was always on. <laughs> and I, I think that is probably his most endearing trait. He's on all sides and no sides. <laughs> <laughs> Only loyal to himself. Yeah, all, all sides and no sides, but you know he's not a mastermind whatsoever. So. <laughs> no. He just walks into things working out for him and just the grace of other people to say, ah, we all forgive you and come on, we'll rescue you too. Or, okay, we'll just let it slide. I was going to say, I think that that also, I mean, a lot of that just goes back to also Mizuki's life experience and especially with the war is that he fought a war and there are no such thing as good guys and bad guys, you know, from Mizuki's point of view. There's no such thing or heroes or villains. There's people who are put in circumstances and do their best beyond, their, you know, with certain life that's beyond their control. You know, I mean, Nezumo Otoko, what is he? He's a survivor, you know. And what is Mizuki Shigeru? He's a survivor, you know. Was no hero, and that's why he's still alive. That's why he lived long enough to write these comics because he did things that were opportunistic. You know, he did things that some people, you know, in retrospect, it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. It's like, oh, you went into this poor family's hut, this group of tribesmen, and you stole their dinner. He did, you know, <laughs> he did that. He was starving. And he found this tribe of people sitting down to dinner, and he barged into their hut and ate all their dinner. I mean, because oh <laughs> that's what real human beings do, you know? And I think that that is one of the other reasons what makes Nizumi so attractive as a character, in a way, because it's Mizuki's commentary on the fact that there are no such things as heroes and villains, not 
black and white. Most people are just like Nezumi Otoko, you know, opportunistic. You know, maybe not that bad, but, um, you know, or the people who survive are. <laughs> yeah, no, that does make him more relatable in a way because he is someone who always wants more for himself, better things for himself, wants to move up in the world. Whereas Kataro, you know, he is more saintly. He's more content with his situation. He doesn't really want anything. He rejects any accolades, any rewards given to him. Like, he's fine where he is. And that's what makes them a good pair, a good conscious to each other. Kataro, who is like kind of perfectly zen, perfectly happy with the way his life is. And Nesuidoku, who always wants to like move up in the world and will scheme and con and do anything he can to get what's his and get the best deal for him. For some reason, Kitaro is, you know, very okay with, uh, you know, being as poor as possible and like constantly digging through trash for food. I mean, at some points, I'm kind of on Nezumi Otoko's side. Like, dude, like you could do, you could do a little better for yourself. You can want things; it's fine, right? And that is, you know, once again, that comes directly from post-war. In fact, like you said, you can want things; will be fine. But Mizuki was raised at a time where the government slogan was, you know, "Want is the enemy." Basically, wanting mm. things was the single worst thing a human being could do because everyone in Japan was starving and there was it was a terrible time. I mean, life was just miserable, miserable beyond our ability to understand what true misery is. And, you know, I understood that when I was translating Shoah, there was a scene that was really impactful to me when I was translating it because Nezumi Otoko sort of like occasionally he'd look and talk to the reader, you know, and he said something like, you know, hey, I'm going to tell you right now that these people were starving, you know, and you don't know what that means. You'll know what the, it was like, you'll know what the word starving means, but you don't hmm. really know what it means to be starving. Um, maybe you've been hungry before, but it's not the same thing, you know, and it was really made me realize, yeah, I don't, in fact, know what it is to be starving. I don't know what it's like to be so excited about food you found in the trash because, at least that's a little bit better, you know, um, even like old fish bones and things like that, you know, and that's something that Mizuki absolutely lived through and brought and put into his comics. And it's really interesting also to see how much that war experience affected Mizuki and how much it didn't affect some other cartoonists, or at least they didn't process it through their art. Because one of the people that I, you know, there's a, quite a few cartoonists of that age that went to war, but Charles Schultz was certainly one of them. He fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. He killed people. He did all sorts of, you know, atrocities that anyone that was in a war had to find themselves. But you would never know that. It never made it onto the page. Yeah. Like, even Snoopy's Red Baron is like a whole World War I callback. Like, you don't see much of World War II represented. Nope, not World War II, because that was probably just too wrong for Charles Schultz. But World War One, you could distance yourself from, you know, and, you know, it was more of a time of heroes and things like that. And Mizuki also, you know, when he was doing it, it this is always like an interesting comparison with Tezuka, right? So Tezuka was younger than Mizuki, but also went through World War Two. But Tezuka's family was wealthier than Mizuki's was. And so I think that he was protected from some of the worst of what other families might have gone through through World War Two. Um, you know, he certainly suffered. I don't think anyone didn't suffer. But I don't think he suffered as harshly as um, Mizuki did. And I think that you can see that in their works. Like, I often think of Tezuka and Mizuki as representing sort of, you know, like these great pillars upon which a lot of Japanese culture is built, with Tezuka optimistically looking towards the future, you know, with science fiction and Astro Boy and this brighter future. And Mizuki looks towards the past. Uh, Mizuki's paradise is a time when all this technology didn't exist, you know, when people weren't because he saw new technology as basically new ways to kill more people. Um, and so this sort of like optimistic, pessimistic 
push and pull between Tezuka and Mizuki is what sort of drove this culture forward of manga. I would say too, just outside of that historical context, I think that even in a modern consideration, something that's fairly appealing about Kitaro and that lack of want is that in some ways it can still serve as a kind of wish fulfillment. I mean, if if you had Kitaro's indestructibility and didn't have to worry about like things like the cost of living or healthcare, maybe you too could just wander about the woods wanting nothing and hanging out with monsters, and wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then there's a lot of scenes where Kitaro's just like bummed because he can't have an ice cream. You know, I mean, those there yeah. those scenes in there where... You know, Kitaro wants things for sure. You know, he does. Um, not Maybe not to the extent that Nezumi Otoko, because Nezumi Otoko wants everything, and Kitaro just wants maybe a few nice things to make the world less crappy. You know, like, in that, Kitaro is, is somewhat like Mizuki himself. Like, Mizuki once tells this story of him as a kid where he and his brothers walked, like, 10 miles to eat a donut because... <laughs> You know, that was just like the greatest thing in the world. And they're like, yeah, I'll walk 10 miles to eat a donut. You know, oh, my God, of course I would. Um, And so I think that's more like Kitaro's level of want. uh, But it's certainly not the greediness of Nezumi Otoko. But also, like you said, you know, that relates to how what kids were able to relate to at the time. Because a lot of kids, you know, they're in war. They're suffering. You know, the post-war Japan before the economic miracle and the boom wasn't a great place to be for sure. And so they all understood and probably daydreamed about what it would be like to just live this great life and not have to starve and not be hungry and not have to go without all the time. And that probably had a lot to do with Kitaro's success. It was something children could absolutely relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's kind of a lack of urgency to his character. You know, he's kind of willing to take things one step at a time. And even if he is, you know, wanting something or needing to help somebody, he'll take it at exactly the pace that it needs to go at, you know. And I think in that way, it is a very kind of uh, fulfilling read in a way to sort of be like, it's a more relaxing read than a lot of other adventure stories and things like that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It definitely like, like Mizuki was not really known for his frenetic energy. I mean, well, it was weird, because of course, he absolutely was in real life. But you know, one of his slogans that he would always tell people is, you know, become a lazy person. And, you know, he's like, <laughs> all the time, you know, I cut as many corners as humanly possible, you know. Um, but which is, of course, a lie. I mean, that was his persona that he created for himself. But anyone that actually looked at him could see that he would probably be classified as just a workaholic. I mean, the guy was completely insanely driven into the work he did, even though... Part of that was this persona of being, you know, the laziest man alive. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely see it in the structure of his comics, which are totally bonkers, where he'll just have a panel that describes an elaborate action scene. And is like, and I don't really want to draw that or I don't have room to draw that. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to just tell you what happens and then move back to like the characters talking to one another. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also tell when he struggles with like kind of the how to end a story where he'll just like, <laughs> like summarize the ending. It's like, oh, well, uh, in one page, this big fight happens and that's done. Like that's the Oberodora versus Dracula story. Like that fight happens like in just one interaction and then the next page it's done. Or the end of the other vampire story with the Marilyn Monroe vampire also there and the dragon vampire where it's like the last page is like just a 
<laughs> rapid fire sequence of oh Harry's all this resolution happened and this movie Toko is still being chased around by people because uh, <laughs> you know they're gonna get him and oh what happened to the vampire and Marilyn Man- Monroe vampire uh they just left and I guess they <laughs> shake their fist angry saying oh we'll get you next time Kataro but they're gone now yeah and this could sound like a knock against it but it, it really isn't it's what gives it a sort of unique quality that feels very personal to the artist you know and it it gives the stories a sort of almost like like dreamlike quality where they're they follow their own logic and it just feels like a comic only Shigeru Mizuki could have made you know uh which I think is really great absolutely um and yeah I mean all of all of that is in there too like his storytelling like a lot of it like if you put it through like where's the structure where's the resolution blah blah, blah. like none of that exists because it's not anything he particularly cares about Mm, yeah <laughs> i also think it's great because just like you said it's like oh sometimes i'm like i don't feel like drawing this so it'll just be written and then another page there'll just be this beautifully rendered drawing of nothing particularly important right mm-hmm. <laughs> just the thing that he really wanted to draw at that time and there's no way to separate art from artists with kitado you know like every single bit of it is mizuki and he is so in fact that's one of the things that made it so hard for us to market um and I was really thankful that Drawn and Quarterly really kind of, I guess, cracked the code on this, I guess, um, because, you know, what shelf do you put this work on? You know, what shelf do you put Mizuki, what shelf do you put Kitaro on? You know, where do you market this? How do you market it? And he is so diverse and he's such a, a mini faceted jewel, you know, that you really can't market it as anything other than Mizuki Shigeru, you know? And I think that Drawn and Quarterly was able to present Mizuki like Mobius, you know, as another person who's just like a world cartoonist. Like, you don't really think of, like, Mobius as the French science fiction author or something like that. You know, you think of Mobius as as Mobius. Um, and that's how you market Mizuki Shigeru, because he can only go on the Mizuki Shigeru shelf, because his work is like nothing else. I will say, though, I was really charmed in the back of the Birth of Kitaro book that there seemed like there was at least a brief attempt at youth outreach. Because in the back of that book, you have the word find. Here's yokai word find puzzles and match games and like <laughs> other things that did not appear in any of the other volumes. That was all me. Um, I can tell the little story behind that if you want. You yeah, sure. go ahead. <laughs> so one of the things that, that made Mizuki's comics also... Uh, and also, like, you know, sparked the whole yokai boom, is that he would often put little, you know, he put in, like, these yokai files in his comics. Um, he started, you know, what he called himself as the yokai hakase or the yokai professor. He would put in these little, like, yokai quizzes and games. So all of that is representative of the original Kitado comics in Japanese. And I just wanted to sort of play homage to those a little bit by putting them in. Because I loved them so much. I thought they were great uh and so drawn and quarterly kind of like indulged me for a volume and let me put them in there (laughs) (laughs) yeah i saw this this kind of marketing effort from drawn and quarterly to push them towards younger readers with this kind of like smaller format and they had a free comic book day issue and stuff and, and the activities in the back and i definitely like thought that was a cool and good move but in the back of my mind still was kind of like well good luck with that that this is going to appeal <laughs> to the like art kids you know the the manga nerds and and whatever uh by art kids i mean adults uh and uh <laughs> but like i've i've had you know this may be a selective audience because i i live in a sort of you know college town or whatever but i've met several kids who are into kitaro and when i mention it in my presentations about like my work come up and and I hear from them or their parents that they're a big fan of Kitaro and and I'm always like 
cool, good. Like, <laughs> I, I'm glad to see that it is <laughs> that it did actually reach younger readers because you know that's that's who it's made for. And Kitaro, if you hand it to a child, I'm there. They, there's no way they couldn't easily get into it. It's just the matter of like finding a way to directly draw their attention to it on a shelf. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, drawn and quarterly when they were putting that together, they were really trying to think of that once again as like, you know, how do you market stuff? And like they had Moomin and they were trying to sort of like maybe create a library of world's children's comics, you know? And I think the mm-hmm. thought there was like, well, if we have Moomin and it's successful, and then we can put Kitado in there and we can sort of market this, you know, like that, you know, and like maybe Cat's parents who wanted to expand their children's worlds outside of just western entertainment into some of these different things and yeah there was definitely some thoughts there on how to market kitado um i like the little volumes i think it's good you know when i see cosplayers of kitado at conventions it is almost 100 percent children i don't think i've ever seen an adult hmm. kitado cosplayer um it's cool always someone who's like in probably like the 10 to 11 years or even maybe a little bit younger so um yeah and like you said, Kitaro is a kid's comic. I mean, that is who it was made for. Yeah, definitely. That's wonderful. I'm glad it has caught on with kids. It's really great. So I was going to say, it's certainly not a smashing success or anything, but it's mm-hmm. an audience, and I'm glad that that audience is there. No, that, that's interesting. I, I, I couldn't help but wonder my whole time reading through this is, man, I, I really want to know what the feedback uh, from like children and families was like on this. So yeah, this is really interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, some of it was pretty interesting to watch, too. Like, there was this blog, this um, this lady wrote that she had, like, a mommy blog, and, um, like, her and her kids read Kitado together, and they did, you know, they made homemade costumes from everything, and so... Oh, that's cute. Yeah, it was... And I always tell this to some people, they're like, well, kids aren't going to read this. I'm like, yeah, kids literally are reading it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there was, there was a little bit of pushback from people, from adult readers, like you said, the art kids, because they're like, well, this isn't being marketed to me, man. It's like, why isn't this like Showa? Why isn't this like other stuff? I'm like, I don't know, because it's okay to make some stuff that isn't marketed exactly for you. And, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's not for me, it's bad. You can still read it. <laughs> <laughs> And what's exactly a turnoff about the way the books are presented? Like, it's still a beautiful looking collection with great covers, great, like, history forwards in the end, in the beginning of each volume. So what exactly is the turnoff if you're a fan of Mizuki's work and want to read some classic manga? Yeah, and I was, like I said, tell them all the time, I was like, you know who thought that this presentation was awesome? You know who approved every single volume? Mizuki! Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so... Put that in your pipe and smoke it, kid. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I wanted to. I wanted to. If we could get back to uh, that discussion earlier about things Mizuki does or does not want to draw, because I, I think that more than anything is really what has captivated me about going through these old comics. And I, I think if you only know Kitaro from anime and not necessarily from the manga, I, I think that some of just like some of just Mizuki's incredible talents as an artist don't necessarily shine through an adaptation. Like the, you know, of course the, 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 uh, the anime do a great job of capturing the stylized characters and things, 
But what's always really immersed me, especially reading through uh, this run, is just like how much effort he puts into backgrounds. Yes, Holy shit. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> He's, his love for the forest and mountains of rural Japan is just so beautiful. Like, I, you know, reading the Tono Monogatari adaptation too, that was the thing that struck me most is just how beautifully, gorgeously rendered his background environments are like that's what he loves drawing more than everything is just these landscapes of rural areas in japan and just appreciating soaking in the beauty of them and also some of the eeriness of them too in like nighttime scenes or in scenes like in the main habitats of the yokai it's just really astonishing and beautiful i can't think of an artist in almost any medium that puts as much tender care into drawing dead grass or like weeds reclaiming (laughs) you know crumbling cemeteries like there's there's just such a beauty to his vegetation and, and like creating that world, you know, especially in those crumbling spaces where, you know, people may have once been, it, it really brings you into that world of the yokai and into the world of the monsters that, yeah, it just, I, without that, I think these comics would not be nearly as good as they are. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, the attention to detail, like illustrating like every blade of grass or like the lines on every tree trunk, like moss and like vines or weeds growing over buildings and houses. Like all of these details are like just so astonishing to me. Like Mizuki's mm-hmm. background and his line work comes mostly from his love of the print artist Albrecht Durer. Uh, if you're familiar with his work at all. So Albrecht Durer uh, was a, I believe he was German, and he, and I want to say the 1400s, um, but he did these incredibly detailed prints, and with this intense black and white, and if you ever look at a Durer engraving, you can see pretty quickly the influence there on Mizuki's own artwork, um, and that's one of the things, like I said, with, with Mizuki, is that because he was so knowledgeable, um, and he looked for um what do you call it, like inspiration. You know, we certainly didn't find inspiration within comic books. Um, and Mizuki himself was rather proud of this because he would often, you know, when asked who he, like, like who his favorite artist was, you know, like he would often say, well, nobody on earth draws it better than I do. So it was <laughs> to say that I liked anyone better than me. Yeah, I have no influences. Yeah, you know, but, but his influences would be, you know, when, once again, he took influence from fine art. And, you know, he owned several Albrecht Durer prints. Um, if you guys, I mean, I majored in art, like not majored in, but I took a lot of art history in college and things like that. So I could see it instantly. If you're not, just go Google Albrecht Durer and you will instantly see where it is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he reproduces classic pieces of art in the comic itself. <laughs> There's classic um works in the art itself you know he'll uses a lot of reference and a lot of that was just mizuki's like you know so there's certain things with japanese books is that um and especially with authors is that there's been a way of writing books with these illusions and these sort of like layered in details that um i guess let me see how can i phrase this best are you guys familiar with the tea ceremony Mm. yeah yeah do you know what the purpose of the tea ceremony is vaguely so the purpose of the tea ceremony, as it was created originally, not as it's probably taught in school, but it was a way for, because samurai at the time were all low class, right? They had come up through the ranks. They weren't nobles. They weren't aristocrats, you know, 
Um, and they wanted to give off this sense of sort of cultural refinement. And one of the ways that they did this was through things like the tea ceremony, which it really was a demonstration of knowledge. It was almost a way of fighting a war without swords because you would get, you know, you would invite some samurai over to your room and, uh, you know, and you would have the tea ceremony and they would pick up the bowl, uh, the tea bowl, and they'd be like, oh, I see this is the work of, you know, such craftsmen, blah, 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 you know. And then they would hand it to the next person. It's like, certainly it is. But it's a piece from his mid-era before he, you know. And it was, <laughs> it was like hipsters talking about music, you know, or movie dudes or anything like that. One of the ways that you kind of one-upped each other was through this demonstration of knowledge, right? And that transferred over into Japanese literature. So one of the most famous works of Japanese literature is Ugetsu Bonogatari, Tales of Moonlight and Rain. And it's written by, once again, the same person who's sort of a lower class merchant. And in the book, he makes all of these allusions to like classic Chinese literature, to no theater and all these things that would be an educated person would recognize. And it's this way of sort of doing this demonstration of knowledge in a way. And Mizuki does the same thing in Kitaro. He will put things in that just simply show off a little bit, I think, his education and his depth. Um, but also they are there to speak to other people who match him in that knowledge and depth because they'll see those and they'll read those and they're like, oh, yes, I recognize this line work. You know, I know where this came from. Oh, this is the work of, you know, Pliny the Elder that you've represented, you know, and like so all of this stuff is sort of baked deeply in there. Um, and I think it was partly it might be partly a little bit of Mizuki showing off, but I think it's also just him wanting to not create something ephemeral, wanting to not create something shallow. Um, and so adding into these works of the great masters and these bits of history and these various pieces of illusion uh, helps him create something that was just greater than a kid's comic and a throwaway piece of trash, <laughs> you know, newspaper. Because think of how many other comics were probably in that same volume, right? Um, when Mizuki was publishing, you know, these come out in these big phone books and there was probably like 30 or 40 other series that no one is talking about on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when, when when you put your influences in your work, you're also sharing like a piece of yourself. Um, that's just as much as making it personal as talking about your own life and things like that. Um, yeah, the the thing about the detail that I always go back to and like to talk about is this idea in Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics that um, he kind of makes this scale and talks about how the cartoonier and more simple your character is, the easier it is for someone to kind of put themselves into that character. And, you know, it, it seems less like an individual that's separate from the reader. But on contrast to that, the more detail you put in backgrounds, the more it feels like a real place that the characters are placed in. And I don't see a more extreme <laughs> example of this practice than Mizuki's work, because the characters are almost as simple as it can get. Like, they're incredibly simple looking characters, and then the details are just about as detailed as it can get. And it really makes the characters feel alive. Like, I think if the characters were drawn with the same amount of detail, uh, they would look very stiff and lifeless uh is which is a complaint i have a lot of times about like very you know quote unquote realistic comics you know uh drawings and comics and uh for the character work so it gives his you know his comics like we said like a real sense of place uh and also the characters really feel like they can like move around within it which is cool absolutely yeah i love just the contrast between the simple character designs and just his really 
lovingly rendered backgrounds. Like, I truly agree that gives it such a living feel of like a real sense that you're seeing a vision like an actual place that could exist in the world but how detailed he renders a lot of these environments especially because a lot of our you know influenced or inspired by actual areas of rural japan it's like just really it's really yeah again i i just really was enamored with it i love the contrast again between like yeah i love just how lively his designs are how like willing he is to play loose with them that's something that, like another part of the music he's influenced that people may not necessarily recognize as music he's influenced. Is you can see that same thing in the works of Hayao Miyazaki, right? You can see that same detailed forest, you know, with cartoony characters and things like that. I mean, there's definitely a line of influence there from Mizuki to Miyazaki. And I think that you'll find almost it would be it would be very difficult to find a cartoonist, especially of that immediate era, that did not somehow incorporate Mizuki's design into their work. And later artists were probably incorporating that same thing, and not necessarily knowing that it originally came from Mizuki. Oh, absolutely. I can so see how Miyazaki was inspired by Mizuki's own sense of spiritualism and love for nature, and how he would incorporate that in his own work. Like, yeah, it's very cool to draw. You know, those detailed forest scenes and things like that in Princess Mononoke, I mean, that's where you're seeing those renderings of leaves and all of that with these other characters. It is also, you know, you mentioned it earlier, um, is that I don't think that it's captured very well in the Kitano cartoons. Like, I've almost seen none of the Kitano cartoons because I don't really see a lot of Mizuki in them, um, to be honest. You know, they're just taking his characters and doing something new with them, and I'm glad people enjoy them, but I certainly wouldn't consider them, they, I don't know, they just seem very shallow compared to his comics. That's fair. Yeah, I, I would say they are fun, like, entertainment, um, you know, and not, I think the, the series that, that tries its hardest to actually capture uh, Mizuki's style is Hakaba Kitaro. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, which is like a limited, run, like a 12-episode or something series that, and it uses, you know, it's kind of a 2000 series that uses computers to its best abilities to replicate his line work and things like that. Uh, so it's a little, like, wonky looking uh but it's neat it's it's cool and i kind of like appreciate the attempt uh, <laughs> the opening the opening is literally a motion comic of panels from the earliest comics like it looks very much like if you tried to do that although it's although in a way it's i mean and what i've seen of hakaba kitaro is that um there is a big difference between the original hakaba kitaro is they're basically using mizuki's later style on his earlier stories because once again the original Kitaro comics are very poorly drawn. Um, they don't have the backgrounds. They don't have any of that stuff that we consider to be characteristic of Mizuki's work. Yeah, but it's interesting they chose that title for an anime adaptation that is kind of drawing closer to the spirit of Mizuki's comics. And to distinguish it from the normal Gege no Kitaro adaptations that are like more child-friendly and are more doing its own thing, kind of divorced from Mizuki's kind of worldview, but it's just playing with the characters. But I think it's interesting. It's a cool drawback to it, especially in anime form, because I'm, as I'm sure a lot of people know, I mean, the reason why Hakaba Kitaro became Hakaba Kitaro, became Gege no Kitaro in the first place is that there was this television executive who wanted to make a TV show out of Mizuki's work, which is still just crazy to me. Like, I don't understand why a television executive, because they were looking for a next big animated hit. You know, they're like, oh, we've had some good luck with 
turning these, uh, you know, turning comic books into cartoons, and it's been pretty successful. You know, after Astro Boy, you know, and Tetsuo Natamu, we want to do some more of that. And like, of all the comics to pick, I have no idea why he picked Mizuki and Kitaro, but he's. <laughs> If you would just basically change all of this stuff about it, including the name <laughs> you know, Kitaro Graveyard Kitaro, it's too scary. We can't sell advertising space. Um, and just can we take your cartoon and make a kid-friendly adventure series? And Mizuki's like, sure. Will that make me money? <laughs> <laughs> no problem whatsoever. Do whatever you want to. Uh, and he came up with the name Gegegeiro Kitaro instead as a way to replace that sort of you know, scary Hakaba Kitaro. Also like a fun little factoid, which if you've read the intro to the, the Kitaro books is that the song itself actually came first before the animated series because mm-hmm. producers were trying to sell the idea that, you know, some of these strips could be turned into cartoons. So they basically wrote a bunch of theme songs and released a record thinking that if it got catchy enough that people would actually want to watch the cartoons. And it worked. And he wrote the lyrics, right? He did, yeah. He wrote the lyrics to the song. Yeah, so good. Dude, it's so catchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the double meaning of the gay gay in the title of how it refers to Mizuki's nickname and him like putting his stamp over it because also the change of title distinguishes it from the utter version of Kentaro that was taken over by different artists way back when he was doing the rental manga days. And then, yeah, so it's literally he's calling it, oh, this is gay gay's Kentaro. This is my... Katara, but then it's yeah, it's also of course the sound that crickets frogs make. Mm-hmm. Which of course he just made up to throw it into the series. I mean, you know, <laughs> and don't actually go gay gay. You know, it's a, it's the not even the cricket sound. It's then you know people have had such a hard time with translating that. I've seen so many goofy odd translations where people like try to explain what gege means or like it's the japanese onomatopoeia for the sound of crickets i'm like no it's not it's literally insects singing kitaro's song of victory <laughs> yeah i definitely those early days when i was trying to figure out you know research the series online and there were like two blogs that even mentioned it like that was definitely a thing that i was driving me nuts i was like what does this mean what does gege mean? <laughs> you know what it's so like interesting and it's obviously not like a word uh and then, you know, over time, thankfully, folks like yourself have have uh, illuminated that. I, I really have to give it to you, Zach, because like, uh, as much as I enjoyed the comic, I think I was telling Lumoff Mike a couple days ago, like, I would say arguably the history of Kitaro is almost way more interesting than the actual comic itself, at least in my opinion. <laughs> it was just really interesting to like, read this history of the like, I had I had no idea about any of this you know, until I started reading these volumes. And I, I'm really, I'm really appreciative of the work that you put into doing your research and like chronicling basically the, uh, you know, the life of Mizuki and the life of Kitaro, the character, because I had no idea that Kitaro was just like, this already established character in folklore. Like it was, it was just such an interesting read. I was gonna say, I love doing stuff like that. And just props on drawn and quarterly for letting me, you know, I think that that was really great that they, cause I, I do this a lot with series I translate. Um, and I can guarantee you that there's a lot of series I translated where I tried to do the exact same thing. And the publisher said, no, thank you. So, um, but drawn and quarterly has been really good about, um, about sort of indulging me in some of this stuff because I think it's fascinating too. And I think it's also, I think that the series works better in context. Like I think that a lot of yeah, for sure. work works better if you understand who Mizuki is and understand how important it is to Japanese culture and why you read these stories rather than just, you know, here's some stories. So, 
Yeah, definitely. I I loved having like one kind of centralized place uh, to have all this information about Mizuki because, like I said, I've you know picked up bits and pieces, and you know you know I don't necessarily know the like. Um, you know, the level of authority some guy on the internet saying something is, you know, and and there's also been like dramatizations about Mizuki's life and stuff, and you can never know how much of that is like trustworthy. And so it was it was really nice to after so many years of kind of like wondering what the roots of this were and what his life was like to like have one spot where I can kind of like look back and 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 get it all there, which was really nice. Yeah, it's an interesting history of the development of this character that was not necessarily that popular at first, but now is just such an institution in Japan. And also, just Misuki's life is just so interesting, too. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his whole life story and just like the weirdness of everything that's gone in his life is just amazing. You know, it's and I mean, some people really connect to his story more than his work. And I, I get that. I completely understand that, you know, because some of his stuff is just fascinating. Like Nonomba is another one. I'm, I forget who mentioned Nonomba earlier. But um, Nonomba, like if you really think about who Nonomba was and how astounding that whole part of history is, is that no, like a lot of these Japanese folktales, the only reason why we still know them is because of Nonomba, right? She played this very specific role in Japanese history, which is not unlike um, Dorothea Veyman in the Brothers Grimm, right? So the Brothers Grimm, when they were out searching for folklore, you know, to put into their book, they found Dorothea Veyman, who remembered all of these stories, you know? So like, she did a think like almost half of the stories, if not more, in the original Brothers Grimm stories were came from Dorothea Veyman. And Nonomba is exactly the same, you know, she plays that same linchpin role in Japanese history that, that this woman who happened to love folklore and remember all these stories from a time that they mostly disappeared due to the Meiji area era push towards science and industry instead of superstition and folklore, and that she happened to raise this little young boy who then happened to have this massive artistic talent with the ability to then transfer these stories so that they, you know, like Mizuki would often say about his own life that he felt like the yokai of Japan because he believed in the yokai, <laughs> very real to him. Um, and he often believed that the yokai had chosen him to be their voice, you know, to carry their stories, stories forward. And you could just talk about all these remarkable circumstances in his life that where if any other person had gone through them, they would have like died at least, you know, 500 times. But he just felt protected by the yokai. Like he felt that um, Nuritabi saved his life on the island of Rabul. Yeah, Nonoba, I definitely want to like shout that out. I wasn't the one who mentioned it earlier, but that's that's my favorite Mizuki book. And, and Mine as well. I, I think is maybe his best. I, you know, like I think it takes kind of all the best qualities of Kitaro and the best qualities of uh, like series like Showa and kind of distills them into this very compact and like focused piece of work that is uh, really powerful and really great. So I definitely encourage folks to read that. Uh, if you're interested in his work, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful hybrid of his of his autobiographical work and uh, his folklore work. So putting those two things together is just a very entertaining and more personal piece than you might just necessarily get out of Kitaro. Mm. All right, all right, mm. I'll buy it. Everybody, it. <laughs> good. <laughs> I always recommend like people as you know, like you know, where do I start with Mizuki? I'm like you know, Nonomba and Onward to Noble Death are pretty. They're good entries, you know. Um, pretty distilled and they're like low level investment. My personal favorite is always going to be Showa History of Japan. I feel like like it is a uh, 
con like it's a contribution to world literature, right? I mean, Showa history of Japan is taught at universities across the world. You know, it's taught at you know Annapolis Naval College and West Point um, on military history. It is just because it is considered to be the most accurate version of those time periods as written by a Japanese person. Um, so if anyone wants to know anything that happens in World War II from the Japanese narrative, then Showa History of Japan is where you go. So I think of that as like his great work. Um, but he himself, if you ask Mizuki what was his best work, he would always answer Kitaro every time. I mean, he loves Kitaro and he would have said that, you know, if you read anything of mine, read Kitaro and the rest of it you can ignore. No, absolutely. In the interview in the back of Onward Towards Our Normal Deaths, that's the question asked. It's like, what work, other works do you recommend that international readers read? And his answer was Kitaro. Yeah, like that's his, I think that was the work that he was most proud of in his life's work. And I love though, I mean, because if you gave him an interview, he'd show up in a Kitaro jacket. I mean, he just loved it. <laughs> <laughs> he would go eat at the Kitaro Cafe all the time, you know, and he'd just show up there and the Kitaro Cafe would be like, oh, and his wife still does. Um, Nonue still shows up at the cafe and, you know, goes and sits there and hangs out, you know. I have to ask though, Mizuki being Mizuki, do you think that was partially because he probably got great discounts there? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would have to think so. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I also think that was one of the great things about that generation of manga artists is that a lot of them were happy to be characters themselves. I mean, in both the sense of, of their flamboyancy. I mean, like Mizuki, like he put himself into the comic really early. Like he did, Mizuki Shigeru was running around in Hakuba Kitaro, you know, back in the old days. So. <laughs> why he did that in particular, but it's <laughs> like he would draw himself in there, you know, and you have people like, like him and you have people like, you know, Matsumoto Reiji, who's walking, you know, strutting around in Captain Harlock capes everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> that generation was just so different from modern <laughs> who are all operating under pseudonyms. You know, they don't want anyone to know their face, you know, they'll cover their face when they go out and things like that. So, um, just a very different time period. I mean, I think the closest thing we have to that is probably a Gege Akutami of, uh, you know, Jujutsu Kaisen fame, who I think went on Japanese TV as his Mechamaru character. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I would also say Paru Itagaki uh, from oh, Beastars yeah, yeah, yeah. wearing yeah. chicken masks at all public appearances and appearing <laughs> as a chicken character in the manga itself. Okay, yeah. Because, I mean, that was one of the ones I was thinking was the chicken mask. It's like, that's someone who clearly doesn't the world to see their face you know and, and yet once a memorable public persona you I, in this day and age you can have it both ways oh no way <laughs> show up in a chicken mask everyone's going to remember you a hundred percent more than if you just showed up as yourself <laughs> <laughs> you know or like, and then like even in the older generation you have kazuo mezu who's running around in his striped mm -hmm. shirts like every yeah lives in a peppermint house like <laughs> <laughs> right yeah the, the best. The king. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you have people like Junji Ito, who's just kind of a guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you see his house, and it's yeah. the blandest, most wood-paneled house. Like. <laughs> you know, Gona Guy's the same way. Gona Guy is the least Gona Guy-looking person on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> you look at him, and he's just this, you know, very nice, sweet-looking, you know, kind gentleman. And you're just like, really? 
Yeah, with those two artists, especially, like, the disconnect between, like, their uh, cheerful, you know, actual selves and then kind of the you know, the fact that their works deal with such, like, dark horror teams. You wrote so Devil fun. Man? No way. <laughs> yeah, well, and that disconnect is also insane to talk about because in terms of Mizuki's work, there's absolutely no disconnect, right? You see Mizuki mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the kind of guy that would write Kitado. You know, he's, like, you know, like, another thing that Mizuki did that a a lot of people may not be as conscious of is that because he came home from the war wounded, uh, you know, with his arm missing, you know, that was considered to be a very shameful thing for Japanese people when they went to war. You know, it was honorable to die. It was honorable to survive intact, but it was certainly dishonorable to come home wounded. It was like a, there was, was, was a whole book about that by, I think, um, Akutagawa, Ryonsuke Akutagawa, who wrote this, um, I believe it was him, this story basically about a, a soldier that came home limbless, you know. Um, and so there was a lot of stuff there, you know, with, with Mizuki coming back and coming back wounded, coming back and very visibly wounded. I mean, you couldn't hide the fact that he only had one arm, you know. Um, and I know one of the few times he didn't, he didn't really necessarily try to hide it, but he, you know, when he got was introduced to his wife, Nonue, for the first time that his dad convinced him to wear like sort of a little like fake arm and it just looked terrible. Um, <laughs> Mizuki did a lot of work for veterans, you know, and volunteer work for veterans organizations to try and end that stigmatism of wounded soldiers. And that was one of the other reasons why he really made himself a persona, you know, why he wanted to be visible and be everywhere uh, to sort of take that shame away from soldiers that had come home visibly wounded. You know, that that's another thing that, like, I keep forgetting about while while I read Kitara was that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, you know, at least most of the stuff he did, or if not all of it, he drew with one arm. Like, I can't imagine what that was like. Yep, all of it, yep. And it still looks great! And with the non-dominant arm, correct? Yeah. What? Woof. Yeah, he retaught himself. <laughs> relearns to draw with the non-dominant arm like that is the most impressive detail yeah he was he was i mean when he was young he was an artistic prodigy i mean he was someone who was born like picasso right um who was able to to draw at a very young age without really any training just this innate astounding artistic ability um to the extent that he was actually recognized and given his own solo art show uh when he was still in elementary school i mean his there's no surviving work from that time of course but by all records it, he was just an astounding artist um someone like i said someone on picasso's level and then he goes to the war and he boom he loses his drawing arm you know so um he comes back and he still has this innate ability but he has no muscle control and so that's why you have so much difference between hakaba kitaro and the later kitaro it's this progress of relearning how to draw like he used to be able to draw and i think that his later stuff in gege kitaro is probably more closer to what his art was like because we uh, didn't get to run to it earlier too i just wanted to say like i i really enjoy in the earlier 
earlier pieces that are available in the drawn and quarterly books. So, you know, obviously not Hakava itself, but the stuff that came after that's retelling some of those, how, how influenced by like EC comic style those are and how yeah. that evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kataro's dad before he becomes the eyeball is like an EC comics mummy. And there are EC, there, there are literally EC comics reaction faces and panels. Mm-hmm. And then they, <laughs> and then those gradually get weeded out as he evolves more into his own again. Yeah. His first, work um was mostly like i mean you know they were just swipes we can call it what it is you know yes. he, he copied and traced ec comics into his own comics so he did it all the time uh unashamedly i mean and even even before kitaro you know he's his first like one of his first breakout comics was just basically superman yeah, <laughs> yeah. just superman because you know there was no copyright lawyers to pull him into jail back then so he did like he did a black like a bugs bunny comic he did a um didn't he do a plastic man that he literally just called plastic man <laughs> he didn't even try and hide it and he hardly <laughs> had the readership on any of these products where that would have ever been noticed by anyone unless he had endured <laughs> as he has yeah yeah just getting paid yeah he was just getting paid just trying to get money and also like a lot of the people at the time when you were like well we want you to draw war comics and he really because you're a veteran you can draw these war comics and he really didn't want to you know but he did some of them but he was just like yeah, whatever will give me some page rates, you know, whatever will give me some money. And then, you know, what he really wanted to draw, of course, was these old, you know, no known by influence comic books and stuff with Kitaro. And when he finally did do them, it was a complete disaster. I mean, they were an absolute failure. Readers constantly voted Kitaro the worst series in the comic um, when they did their little readers polls. And it was only because he had an editor who liked his work and had faith in him that he wasn't just flat out fired. Because they actually would normally have a rule that, like, you know, whoever's voted the worst, you know, if you're voted the worst, like, three episodes or three magazines in a row, then your series gets cut. And his was voted the worst, like, ten times in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. But because the editor liked him, um, they kept him on and just, like, you know, kept giving him work. And he, like... Kitaro really sprang off, you know, when there was this sort of avant-garde magazine, Gato, that came out. And really, that moved him up into a different readership that I think could appreciate his quirky style a little bit better. Yeah, that's the thing that I always thought was interesting, is that he he was in Gato, but he was also in, like, Shonen Magazine and stuff. like Shonen Magazine, Shonen Sunday. Yeah. He was publishing Gitaro in all sorts of different... Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Putting, like, Kitaro everywhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Series was not exclusive anywhere. Like, he could shop it around anywhere. Like, he had complete ownership of, like, his version of the work. And, I mean, not complete ownership because... Right, because of the original version that he did as rental comic. Like, that, he got booted off of that. That other artist came in. But, like, you know, with his comics, like, he could draw guitar stories for whoever he wanted, it seems. But, I mean, what was, you know, when when he got fired... I always think it cracks me up that he actually got fired it was given to uh you know to takeuchi kanko and it just cracks me up and then he has like i forget exactly what series it is but he has the um the fake kitaro that comes in um i know it's oh, yeah. book, you know and that just to me is once again <laughs> he's battling out with um takeuchi right there on the page he's like you know yeah you fake kitaro well here's <laughs> yeah, no, there's one story where Nezumi Toko is like trying to get a, buy a comic book with a dime and he like says, Oh, Farty Kataro. <laughs> I guess I'll give this a call out to the rental. That was pretty Kitaro. good. Um, I know it'll never happen, 
But I would love to be able to have that original Hakaba Kitaro comic that Mizuki was fired off of just licensed. I want the, <laughs> I want the Utter Kitaro comic where he goes to the college. He's a teen, he goes to college or whatever. Oh, the Kitaro sex comics? Oh, yeah. American Pie starring Kitaro. Like, I've got reproductions, I mean, of the Hakaba Kitaro series. And with the other people like, oh, I wish we could do that. I'm like, no, you don't. They're bad. <laughs> <laughs> really bad, you know. I mean, the reason that he got fired is because they suck. And I think people want them in theory, but I don't think people would actually pay money for them. You know, I think that once that's you, fair, yeah. You would glance at it, you're like, wow, these are awful, and it would go on your shelf, and you would never read them again. So you kind of want to see them, but you don't really want them. Yeah, you know what I would like as we're talking about wish list type stuff is is he has a lot of other like yokai comics like Akumakun and Kaposanke. Oh, yeah. yeah. That I think at this point we've got a good chunk of Kitaro. Like I, I, I love Kitaro, and I would read as much Kitaro as John and Coralie would throw at me. But like, I definitely feel like content uh, with the amount that we got, and would love to branch out into a few of his more iconic titles like those. I would like some of that yokai encyclopedia material. Ooh, yeah. I mean, that would be number one on my wish list. It's like, like I love his yokai encyclopedias. I love his. Um, his yokai anatomy books. I think those are great. God, I can't believe that's another one. There's so many things that Mizuki has inspired that people don't actually know come from Mizuki. And I just mm-hmm. had a recent set of cards from, you know, the game Magic the Gathering? They yeah. Have, um, these monster anatomy cards. And I'm like, that's Mizuki Shigeru! <laughs> <laughs> Man, I have an art print that I bought at a show, like a music show, like years ago that I just thought was one of those cool like monster anatomy things. But they kind of, you know, they put a beer bottle in his hand and whatever, like kind of retraced it and did some other stuff. And I had that on my wall for years without knowing that was actually a Shigeru Mizuki drawing that. uh, (laughs) There's just so and there's so much of that out there. Like, I think what I think would be interesting to do would be and. the problem is it might be a nightmare to get the rights to it, but uh, it would be fun to do like a book about Mizuki and be able to mm. include um, some of the like translations of some of the Hakaba Kitaro stuff so people could look at it and be like, oh, so that's what it's like. Because it's like this, this mythical thing that people haven't seen, you know, and if I, they give it a little bit more power than it actually has because they haven't seen it, they've just heard the title. Yeah, one of those kind of like, Look, uh, like I will the Helen McCarthy Tesco book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, yeah, honestly, pretty much. Yeah, more Mizuki the better. Oh, so seriously. Also on the subject of Katara, I would, I am sort of curious about the stories from the rental period from the other artists that took over after Mizuki that I want to publish here too. Yeah, you know, my Takuruchi stuff. And once again, it's it's fine. It's just not. It's not really inspired in the same way. I mean, it's another thing where it's interesting to look at, but it's just not really as good. Um, the problem with you that stuff is that just honestly, Mizuki's family is highly, highly protective of the rights to his work. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A challenge to get them to agree to some stuff, you know, as I know, and I think they're, I think they're wonderful, and I love that they protect him so much. Um, sometimes I wish they were a little bit more uh, generous, I don't know, not generous, that's the wrong word. I wish, I don't know, they could just hold the keys to the, to the art chamber a little bit too tight. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I understand. Like I've worked with multiple museums because they're like, oh, you know, we need to, we want to get some some of Mizuki's works. We're doing this exhibition on 
Gilkai Prince of UPLA, wouldn't it be great to have some of Mizuki's imagery also here to show how these UPLA monsters have come into modern comics and everything? And Mizuki's family like, oh, really? That's a great idea. Not going to happen. You know, what if we just, you know, put up a few of his comics? He's like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. I would also say, even though it is an easy thing to import, I'm holding in my hands right now as I'm talking, which no one can see because this is an audio format, but uh, <laughs> the Shigeru Mizuki yokai art book that was put out by, uh, the, the, so I'm holding the French edition by Editions Cornelius. I have issues with that, with that edition, I have to say, um, which is, it's beautiful and I'm glad they put it out, um, but they took away all of his text that accompanied the issue. Oh. That's not in there, is it? It's just the book, just the pictures. They, they just It's just a picture and a name, which, like, and, and I would love to see all of that together because these are some of the most beautiful Mizuki pieces I've ever seen. And I would love for that to be published in, you know, in English with the text. I'll take that back. I'm sorry. At, at, at the back, there is an index, which, which in, in French has, like, two sentences about each yokai. So, so I, I believe they just pushed it into, but it's not beneath the image itself. You have to kind of look at the picture and then find the accompanying thing in the index. Because I would love to do those books. Like, I'd love to do just like a really, but I don't know the best way to go do a good treatment of them because they're visually, they're so beautiful. But I just also like his commentary that he did on each issue, on each image. And I know that that's not present in the French edition. So that would definitely be one of my dream key projects also. But oh, but I really want to do it if we could do the whole thing. Well, push for those encyclopedias. I will buy them, and I'll tell everyone I know to buy them. And <laughs> buy the balls gifts. So, as much as I, as much as I've been loving the conversation, I do think we should probably be on our way to kind of wrapping up with our final thoughts and getting to Twitter questions. So, uh, any any final thoughts we just want to give about Kitara before we uh, move on to the end of the show? It's wonderful. Go read it. And I'm proud of us for going two hours talking about Itaro. And no one has mentioned that his dad is an eyeball. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, there's so much more to say. Yeah, we didn't even go into specific yokai. But yeah, that yeah, lives no. in an empty eye socket. I feel like that's a thing. That's a good example of how the anime like is kind of like a softened version. Like that's often pretty obscured. Uh, in the cartoons, but like in the manga, it's it's <laughs> clearly stated. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Guitar's whole backstory, we didn't even go into that. It's just pretty dark is that like his parents were the last two survivors of his ghost spirit tribe. And then basically they died of starvation. And then Guitar was born, his mother already did from underneath a grave. And then his dad, he is he basically is living on through willpower own. It's just this eyeball that has also sprouted arms and legs. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that guy was just gonna kill him, or at least was thinking about it. Yeah. And a lot of that one is like that comes through like the whole idea of a of the yokai giving blood and having that being tainted blood and everything. That was a real scandal that happened it's in Japan that Mizuki basically borrowed from. Mm, wow. Blood was donating blood to make a little extra money. Tadao Suge does some manga about this as well. Yeah, Suge was one of Mizuki's uh, assistants. Oh, wow. Oh. That's, that's pretty wild. No, but you're right. Like, there's so much we could talk about Kitaro, and, like, I, I am sad that, like, we do have to kind of wrap up soon ish. But, like, I, I, I will say, I. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, I really enjoyed reading these. And I just want to put out there uh, when I, you know, said, like, oh, you know, the history of Kitaro is more interesting to me. I, I don't want to come off as, like, putting down the comics. I do think the comics are very good. Uh, but I think it's like Zach said earlier, like, I, I do think the actual history of Kitaro and Mizuki 
I think without those, uh, I mean, the, the, the package just doesn't feel complete without those. So I'm, I'm glad that we got those. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I feel like, like I said, you can't separate art from artists when it comes to music Shigeru's work, right? You know, and if you know one, you have to know the other. Um, it's not that they don't stand on their own, but and I think that once they, I think they're just great comics, but they mm-hmm. really are. it's only like half, you know? Yeah, Pretty much. I think that Mizuki has put so much of himself in his work that, like, while the stories are enjoyable and all, it like, I think our appreciation is enhanced by understanding the context in which he wrote them and what he was drawing from in terms of life experiences, in terms of the stories he grew up on that he is communicating through this work to his audience. And so that's what makes me appreciate the series all the more. Like, in addition to just the the fun of the stories and the characters in themselves, like, just the context of, like, being able to understand, like, what Muzuki is trying to communicate, where he's, the point, the place and mindset and philosophy he's communicating from. That's what I find really fascinating and endears me to the work all the more. Yeah, it, um... As a, I guess, my closing thing, the only thing I, I didn't really get a chance to talk about is it kind of occurs to me that we didn't break down a whole lot of individual stories. And that makes sense to me because, you know, each volume is several stories. There's no like overarching single narrative that you can discuss in a podcast, you know. Uh, but I, I just did want to kind of mention that my favorite Kitaro story is The Ghost Train. And I, I love that one a, a whole lot because it, it kind of stands out uh, amongst a lot of them because a lot of them have this kind of format of there's a bad yokai and Kitaro has to come in and defeat the bad yokai. And this is one where he's actually kind of on the side of the yokai and, and is teaching some bad humans a lesson. And it's also one that's a little bit more straightforward as far as like a narrative. It doesn't have as much of that twisting, weird format, uh, like uh, dreamlike quality, like I was kind of talking about earlier in the show. I think it's it's a it's a very focused chapter that... Uh, I think it's cool and has a lot more kind of like some good creepy imagery in it um, and and really feels like a unique uh, story, like a unique entry amongst all the other Kitaro stories. So I just wanted to mention that one. Yeah, that definitely had like the kind of the most like horror vibes in terms of like this idea of like, oh, these guys were tripped on like this yokai train. They're gonna, that'll take them to hell. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. I also love the the one in terms of like stories that are kind of mo- focused on a human character interacting with Taro. Like I love the baseball one with the kid who just yeah, that's Taro's another baseball. favorite of mine. <laughs> and then they have to play Taro's team, and if they lose, they'll all die essentially. And then it it ends with just because all you know, Taro's teammates have to like go back because the sun rises before the game ends. So he's just like, uh, okay, you guys don't have to go to hell. I'll just take my ball back. How's that? <laughs> that's, that's another just little commentary I could add in there. So the baseball one largely comes from also an EC Comics episode where the monster oh. is about to play baseball. So that's another not direct lift, but very close. That uh, was a lot gorier, the EC one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that baseball one is really fun because it's just packed full of monsters too, like lots of really great drawings of those monsters and and it's one that is a real is one that I really love to see if I can the anime adaptation of because they all kind of take a different slightly different approach and you can kind of see the perspective of the studio at the time and the people making it where like sometimes the kids are more sympathetic, sometimes the kids are uh, more villainous and need to be taught a lesson, sometimes uh, they're more like adults who are professionals and things like that. And uh, it's interesting to see the different kinds of takes on, on this one story. 
I also, one of my favorites, and I know that I think they used this one for the recent adaptation, um, which I was, didn't watch very much because I just couldn't deal with how bad the translation was, but um, Miyagi <laughs> is one of my favorite people. Mm-hmm. Because I was just about to mention how beautiful the art in that one is. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's such a Mizuki story, right? It starts out with a kid pooping on a sacred mountain. <laughs> and like, that is such a Mizuki thing. I'm sorry, but if you're doing a Kitaro and no one's pooping, then you're not really <laughs> 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 you know, That was something that he did when he did this adaptation of well, and and it's such it's so beautifully Mizuki too because it's like the grandeur of because like, I I remember I actually capped that specific panel like last week uh, and it's it's the grandeur of the the mountain and the nature around it and then this very crass comment about pooping so it's y- you you get this like reverence for Mizuki the artist of. The, you know, the beauty of nature, but you also get Mizuki, the human being, kind of commenting on our own, like, disregard for that beauty. <laughs> and it works wonderfully. Like, when you, you know, like, and just also, like, for him, I think pooping was, was a metaphor for being human, you know? Like, hmm. One of those things where, um, when he bonded with the Tolai tribe in New Guinea, who saved his life, one of the things that they were most amused, or like, I guess not amused by, but they saw Mizuki pooping, and that's how they realized he was just a person. That, you know, that's great. Like they did, you know, he's like, oh, you poop, we poop. Come on. Oh, hey, everybody poops. <laughs> <laughs> poop is the universal language. And this, this is something that we didn't bring up about Nezumi Otoko. Like, not only is he greedy and distrustworthy and stuff, he's also, like, the most disgusting creature uh, t- on this planet. You know, very stinky and, you know, has covered with... worms all over him. His yeah. farts are literally toxic. And they, I love how in the Arid story, like, he farts on Arid while they're climbing the road. And Mizuki is to explain that a normal person would die right away from reading this in. But Arid is a vampire, so he just got knocked out briefly. Oh, that was amazing. I love, like, just the lack of continuity or, like, even logic there, too. Because, like, one time, Mizumi will say, like, you know, oh, he's so stinky, he hasn't been for a thousand years. And literally the next episode will be him in a hot tub taking a bath. (laughs) (laughs) Continuity doesn't matter. It's fine. (laughs) He doesn't use soap, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I do want to use this as a transition into our Twitter questions real quick. Uh, while we're on the subject, I want to start off with the first one from our good friend Sakaki at Kiribon, uh, who asks uh, what our favorite or best Kitaro yokai encounter in the anime and manga is. And I do want to start off with this one because I would be really upset with myself if we recorded this whole thing and I didn't uh, mention this one. Uh, I really like the moment in the uh, Akashita story where uh, Nezumi Otoko leads Kitaro almost to this like hot springs. But then it turns out to be this Yokai Akashida. And, you know, when he tries to trap Kitaro and Kitaro tries to run away, it just turns into an 18 wheeler monster truck. <laughs> it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in a comic. And it manifests a motorbike from Nezumiya Toka right alongside him, too. <laughs> uh, that, that spread really caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. Yeah, that's really great. A, a, a yokai adversary of his that I really love is Backbeard. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think he's such a striking image, and and you know pushes Kitaro to his limits, and is a very like menacing and strange character, and, and drawn like nothing else. 
Yeah, it's just the realistic eye is just like so unnerving and contrasting with like the more, you know, cartoony dot-eyed characters. Like it's just a black mass with a realistic eye. It's just so creepy. And also, once again, that is Mizuki's nod to the uh, surrealist artist uh, Obi-Wan Redon is one of the places there where Backbeard comes from. Mm. Yeah, I've always wondered. Always layers in Mizuki comics. Every time. I guess really quickly, if I had to give like another answer, the the yokai that like actually kind of freaked me out the most, uh, I think was in the pilot volume that Drone and Quarterly released with uh I, I believe it's Futakuchi Ona, like the long haired girl with the like mouth in the back of her head oh, really yeah. creeped me out. That actually mm. kinda scared me a little. <laughs> Of the Kitaro ones, my own personal favorite has got to be the Great Tanuki War. And I just love, like, because um, it's just, so much of it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just love it. Like, he kisses him on the cheek, and that becomes, like, the kiss of Tanuki that slowly transforms, you know, Kitaro <laughs> monster. Or, and, like, turns him into stone. And then, like, they grab um, Itamomen from the sky and so he puts him on like a pair of underwear, and so he's walking around <laughs> <laughs> for no particular reason. They crucify Nezumi Otoko. I mean, it's all just so random stuff. The yokaiju is amazing. <laughs> the fact that it's defeated by eating guitar and his stomach acid melting him from the inside. Oh, is that so uh. good? The giant catfish. Yep. And also, that's all by it, Kataro being eaten by it and then, like, just it navigating itself to get frozen in the Antarctic. Oh, man. <laughs> I like the encounter with Hoko because Hoko uh, is the only character that can match Kitaro's machine gun teeth by also having machine gun teeth. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, man. I like Sarakozo and the plate at the back of his head that he can use as a lens and a laser. And then he pisses poison on him. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of peeing at Kitaro, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's all there. <laughs> I'll, I'll say, like, like, there are a lot of visually striking yokai, and I love them. But if I'm going to say two that I really enjoy that are on the far less frightening side, uh, of course, Nurikabe, the living wall, uh, Lovely, lovely character. And uh, one of my favorites uh, is in Nananba, and that's Beto Beto-san. The smiling face that is the, the if you ever hear footsteps walking behind you in the dark, it's just Beto Beto-san trying to pass by you. <laughs> and if you kindly invite him to go in front of you, he'll just leave you alone. <laughs> oh, wow. So good. And I, I, I love that it's just an idea of like a way to comfort a child of like, oh, you're hearing sounds at night, but it's just Beto Beto-san trying to walk by. And another favorite of mine is Elite or Elite, the 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 vampire that has the that kind of teams up. That, yeah. yeah, that teams up with Nezumi Otoko. He he's a character that has a lot of like charisma and uh, personality. You know, all all of the Mizuki vampires are really fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, the dragon like vampire and Marilyn Monroe vampire are also great. The French vampire in the first story, La Sienne, that's so great. Yeah, I love all the different vampires in Qatar. I also love Odoro Odoro. I think that he, the that design is so creepy and cool. It's like a giant lion dragon head thing with a bunch of hair. I like, there are two different versions of it. I like the more traditional version that's like, you know, a science experiment gone wrong. This guy trying to cure baldness and then got turned into this monster and it's been pretty fun. So I love, and again we mentioned it before but i do love the adoro adoro versus vampire story it's like it's so cool putting like a 
Western yokai and Japanese yokai against each other, both vampiric creatures. And then I love how that story develops. And it's, <laughs> I, I really love the design of it. I love both of the stories used in it because they're both very different takes, but they're very clever in how they use the, the character and the concept of it. Uh, but just to move on to our next question from uh, Jekka at Jekka1021, who asks, favorite and least favorite characters, and why is Nezumi Otoko the worst one? And I I, th- I think you worst mean that ironically. Best, I think <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Nezumi Otoko is the answer to both. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Th- that's my thing about Kitaro, though, is that, like, because I-, I knew there were other yokai that were characters, but, like, it's kind of like we mentioned earlier. I am kind of shocked at, like, how much the other yokai don't really like appear too often like it is mo- most of the time i would say it is kind of the nezumi otoko show yeah <laughs> though ita moment has a lot of really heroic moments That's like true. tanuki wards other stories do so he's an mvp for sure main crew but they certainly don't appear as like a squad and you know the same way they do i think in a lot of the other adaptations you know they're not mm. i mean unless <laughs> <laughs> Kitaro will face a problem too big for him to handle, so he'll call it his, you know, his yokai squad of people. Yeah, no, that's definitely <laughs> the yokai war stories, where like those characters like all come together as a group, really. But Madamo Yaji would be a good runner-up too. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that image of him bathing in a teacup is like super iconic and so good. Yeah, one of my favorite moments with him, I think, is during the um, Eret story where uh, Kitaro leaves, and then uh, Madama Oyaji just kind of wakes up in the middle of the night, going, "Kitaro, I want tea." <laughs> he just demands tea out of nowhere, which is pretty great. Grumpy in the morning. I, I love the panel where he just grabs a passing spirit to fly around. It's leaving him. <laughs> here's a digression. In uh, One Piece, popular manga One Piece, uh, the revolutionaries, there's like a character that controls crows or manifests crows or something. And they all travel around through a huge cloud of crows that carry them around. And I'm always like, is that a Kintaro <laughs> reference? Interesting. <laughs> because that was just, you know, Mizuki's creation. So anyone that's... Uh, Actually, speaking of references to Yokai and Kitaro, uh, that kind of leads into our next question from uh, Ermine2, I think that's how you pronounce that, uh, who asks, uh, what do you think about the increase in Yokai interest internationally? Why do you think Yokai interests people so much even outside of Japan? Yeah, it's been awesome. I mean, when I, like, that was one of the battles I fought when I first was hired to do Kitaro with Ron and Quarterly, was to, um, maintain the word yokai and to maintain the yokai names because they were they disagreed you know they were like there was going to be goblins it was going to be cat chick it was going to be you know kind of the standard stuff and i was like no try i just i thought in the future that eventually yokai would catch on i had faith that it would and i was like you do this now your comments will look out of date it won't be cool anymore you know it will be like well, these names are hard for kids to say. I'm like, kids can say Pikachu. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. And speaking of Pikachu, <laughs> thank you, Yokai Watch, right? So. <laughs> it's been interesting to watch that transition from a time when I had to fight really, really hard just to even keep the word Yokai in a comic book untranslated versus where it is now, where that would not even be a question. Although I think some, some series are still translating it, right? Yeah, it depends. One of my misgivings or the things I lo- I really am happy with the Yurisei Yatsura release Viz is doing now, but the 
thing that I some one some of the things I don't like is how they have translated some names and how they have translated Oni as ogre instead of keeping it Oni. That I'm not as happy about. But it's not it's not as bad as them renaming Onsen Mark to a Hot Springs emblem, which I <laughs> more baffling decision I don't understand at all. That's a whole other direction I could get into. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyways, not to disparage another translator's work because I would be a professional. And a lot of times it's actually editorial that makes those decisions, not the translator themselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought that was a missed opportunity because Urusai Yatsura is absolutely a yokai comic. And the translation basically removes that part of it. I, I would like to posit a few uh, theories as to why we're seeing kind of the yokai boom internationally. And I think part of that is... Uh, I've just seen a general growth in interest in cryptids internationally, especially as cryptids become more memeable. And I think I think it certainly helped yokai in particular that like a lot of manga use yokai. A lot of video games are really drawing on yokai influences, like yeah. like the 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 explosion of popularity in uh, the Shin Megami Tensei series. In uh, you know yokai watch, unfortunately, did not really make the splash internationally that. Perhaps it was hoped it would. You know, Pokemon who are influenced by yokai. Uh, even the most recent Monster Hunter, Monster Hunter Rise, has several monsters that are explicitly more influenced by yokai than previous generations had been. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that drawing all of these games and uh, manga and things that have been becoming more popular and just the general rise in interest in cryptids, the supernatural and other things that are even more accessible than they've ever been through the internet. You don't have to go to libraries to find books in these things anymore. I think it was only a matter of time before yokai took a place where they could be more internationally recognized along with the likes of the Mothman. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. And as someone who's also been a lifelong fan of cryptids, you know, I had a magazine subscription to 40 in Times when I was a kid. I mean, I've always been interested in all of this stuff, aside from just yokai. But the, the interest in yokai has been pretty astounding also because it goes outside of pop culture. You know, you have major museums, like, doing yokai exhibitions now. I mean, I was actually, like, flown down to Australia to help open this museum exhibition on yokai at the largest museum in Australia. I mean, that was just astounding me. I got there, and there's, like posters all over the city for this giant yokai exhibition, you know. Then they held one in uh, New Mexico also. It's just been, it's been really interesting to see how how this transition has had, how the West has finally hit their yokai boom. Hopefully here to stay. I hopefully it's not a bad thing that will just disappear. That's also possible. But I think there's a general enough interest in it. And I think a lot of the interest comes from, like people say, like, what's different about yokai? To me, what's different about yokai from other supernatural traditions is there's just so many of them that that in itself creates interest you know yeah and the fact that anything can be a yokai it's like a, a spiritual type of creature that's not just defined by like being specific monsters there are there are specific different monsters but like anything can be yokai so like it being yeah mm-hmm. it's just kind of interesting i i can't say i have like a lot to contribute to this question but like it because it, it, it's just not something i've really thought about but it is kind of interesting just kind of hearing you guys talk about this kind of thing where it's like oh yeah the, like now that i think about it yokai are a part of like the makeup of a lot of like really popular things and like culture and media that like i just it, it's just easy for me to like kind of not really think about it almost yeah, and the more yeah i mean people love characters <laughs> yeah those are allowed to stay yokai the more interest you have in it Previously, you would localize those out into something else, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And now you even have stuff like, because uh, every time the Osami Yokai appears on a TV show, somebody always 
pings me about it uh, somewhere. But, you know, they're, they're just showing up everywhere, you know? Like, it was like a CW show called Teen Wolf, and there were yokai running around in the background there with the werewolves. Mm. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. They're starting to emerge into the sort of the world conscience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both yokai and kaiju, you know, it's like very common to see, like, mainstream American pop culture just reference those by name. And because they're well recognized and now well understood in popular culture, it's oh, these are specific Japanese like monsters. And when we mention these, you know what these are now. So like, you can just call Starro a kaiju in Suicide Squad, and people know. That's an interesting thing that you just said there—that they're specifically Japanese monsters, and that's something that I will definitely. I know there's certain other yokai writers that will disagree with, is I don't think of them as specifically Japanese because right. so many of them came from China, and so many of them came mm. from India. I mean, you know, like, Japan just wholesale adopted Kitsune, for example, magical foxes. That's not a Japanese thing. They just got that from China. So calling all yokai Japanese would be like calling vampires American, just because we made, you know, they're not. They're not. They are right. other cultures that we've adopted in. And so one of the things that Mizuki would do with Kitado is he thought it was all yokai and that's why you have vampires in Kitaro and that's why you have all this other stuff you know I mean you have the yokai cloth story with a Chinese yokai (laughs) (laughs) so he like I think he would disagree with them having that nationality tagged on them Mm -hmm. as well I mean Dracula is referred as into Kitaro as what a western yokai (laughs) yeah yeah We have a lot of anime questions that I think we could get through fairly quickly, which includes uh, Jekka's other question, basically asking if any of us have seen any of the anime adaptations and uh, how we think they hold up compared to the manga. Well, the 2018 adaptation is the one that's available uh, readily legally on Crunchyroll. I have not seen all of it. I, what I have seen is pretty good, and I appreciate it. there are a lot of uh, stories that really uh, do play with a lot of you know, social commentary on modern technology, like people's reliance on social media, uh, workplace culture in Japan. I appreciate that they mocked Logan Paul. Yeah, well, they called out <laughs> I heard that, about that Logan yeah. Paul story. Yeah, no, that was good. So it was a very cleverly written show. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting, like they do a lot of interesting takes on the stories. Like it, it was always interesting to see what they would do. I think the show is very good when it's doing the one episode one-off stories and then every once in a while they try to do a big arc and it just becomes kind of generic shonen action stuff like the western yokai Yeah arc. that all of it I, even the best arc was kind of the first one with the uh, Nanashi character but even that once it really kicks in it it kind of started losing my interest like it it really the best stuff for me was those one-off episodes, and a lot of times they kind of twist your expectations if you know the stories already and kind of do things that were pretty unexpected. Um, and off the top of my head, it's been a few years since I've watched it, so I can't give any examples, unfortunately. But I, I had a really good time watching it, and it was very exciting for me, who had sort of gotten into Kitaro with this sort of mythology about how there's one every 10 years and 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 stuff to finally be able to kind of experience one uh, in real time and legally, uh, was very exciting, uh, and fun, but it's, you know, it's no replacement for the comics for sure, but it's, uh, it's its own thing that I think judged in its, on its own merits is pretty good. And I even got used to and, and kind of appreciated the sort of like 
cutesy, crazy anime girl design for Nekumusume, which when I first saw it was like... Yeah, Nekumusume. Nekumusume is interesting. It's like she's redesigned <laughs> to be like what is considered modern day cute in like every anime interpretation. Yeah, that 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 character I ended up liking, but the design, like, you know, I, I kind of like, I kind of like maybe a few decades back where they made her a little cute because they wanted it to be a cute character, but she was still a little kind of like potatoy shaped and mm. and kind of fits in with the aesthetic. Even Kitaro in the new one is a little like skinny for my tastes. Takes away from Yuzuki's original thing where like, you know, he himself who had experienced a lot of, you know, trauma and like for his own appearance and everything. So he wanted this idea that ugly characters could be good too, could be the heroes too, you know. And by sexifying his characters, by making a sexy, you know, Nekomusume by making a cute Kitaro. I get how that's a little bit more remarkable, but it just it's sad to see that core message of Mizuki taken away. That, you know, even if your body is not exactly what everyone thinks a body should look like, it doesn't make you a monster, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I get that. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah, no, no matter how weird you look, you'll find a monster family that's for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my only other thought on the anime is that um, in terms of evaluating all the openings, my favorite is the one for the 2008 version that's more funk uh, themed. That's just my favorite to listen to. Regarding the anime, I'll say uh, I, I I enjoy what I've seen of the 60s show, which is not all of it. I enjoy what I've seen of Hakama Kitaro, which is not all of it. I've enjoyed the little bits I've even seen of the new one, which is not all of it. I While I commented earlier that I don't think it matches the visual artistry of the original manga, I still think there is value to these things in just keeping these stories alive every generation true, and yeah. in attracting the attention to the stories and to Mizuki. And maybe maybe kids who see these things will be inspired to read the original comics or, you know, there's so many ways to engage with that. I mean, I, I was even thinking uh, this year during the pandemic era run of uh, Japan's Universal Halloween Horror Nights, there is only one haunted house and it's a, it's a Kitaro haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know what's in there, but you know, it's just it's just great that that is still a thing that is so very alive for comics from the sixties. Yep, and that's a, that's a really good point. Is that uh, if this stuff is not allowed to change, it will die. It has to change. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, um, and if it's not, then it'll go the way of the old row and you know a thousand other comics that have that. No, I mean, much like the row, I think that interest uh, and awareness of. Kitaro definitely was helped by the 2018 version for like just a lot of general anime fans. The fact that it was on Crunchyroll, so I think that was only a good thing for just spreading awareness of the series and drawing people to the comics. So like the these new adaptations, you know, uh, and the new Kitaro is pretty good. But I think always like having new adaptations definitely for classic verse can like you know let like new generations rediscover them. Yeah, I think that newest version is also either available or going to be available on Tubi as well so and that's a free app so if people want to check it out uh they can check it out there that yeah just for the record yeah my favorite anime adaptations are the 60s ones and the 80s ones like uh the 60s ones are the closest i'd say to intention like to the manga but they still are pretty kind of action adventured up um and the 80s one is just kind of like fun goofy 80s anime you know and i like that i I love that aesthetic that's kind of what i came up watching and I love that Hakaba Kitaro series too, and it's short, and that's always the one that if I were to like push Discotech or somebody to license one, that's the one I would choose just because I think it would be affordable and 
and, and a small package, you know. It's not hundreds of episodes like that. Please. I keep pushing DiscoTech to do the 60s version. I'm like, let me translate mm-hmm. it. I'll send it off to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a little Mizuki documentary for you, and it'll be this awesome little thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would, That'd I would be love so that. awesome. <laughs> I agree. My personal favorite is the 60s because it's the one that's the closest to Mizuki's original work, even though it's funky, but so was the original. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and hey, speaking of uh, speaking of these sorts of things, uh, the Great Yokai Wars uh, and the Yokai Monsters box set is available now from Arrow Video uh, and explicitly movies that were made to cash in on the on the uh, Yokai boom Mizuki created. So. <laughs> A lovely documentary featuring me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just watched that the other night. It was really cool. You and Matt Alt and uh, Hiroko Yoda and a few other people. It's really cool. Just to kind of cap off the anime talk, I'll just put this out there. I have not seen the new anime, but I would really much like to. I've heard good things about it. And I guess we kind of already answered this, but CB Strider on Twitter also asked, you know, besides what's on Crunchyroll, have any more Kitaro TV series been translated into English? And I don't think very many, if at all, have been. Only fan subbed. There were fan subs, and that's the only way I saw any part of it. Sure, yeah. I think the only other officially translated thing were those those um, Hawaiian TV broadcasts of the 80s series, Nippon Golden Network. And like I said, that's now exists in the <laughs> realm of bootlegs as well. It would be nice if that was available. I always think about those NGN like uh, facilities, and I'm like, somewhere there's a tape with all that, all that Doctor Slump, all that, <laughs> uh, all the dramas and Torasan movies and stuff subtitled are back there somewhere. Just a treasure trove waiting for you, Joey. <laughs> I know. Um, who do I? Whose door do I beat on? I guess I have to fly to Hawaii sometime. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I see reference every once in a while to there being like. Like something called Spooky Kitaro that I think was an English dub that I think... Animax Asia dub, I think. Yeah, but I don't know. I think that, yeah, maybe ran in Asian countries or somewhere. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not sure. Animax Asia produces their own English dubs of various shows. Yeah, I've never seen any evidence of that existing besides, like, people saying it exists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I guess just to move on to our next question from our good friend Marion at Microwavy. Uh, and we don't have to go too much into this, but they ask, uh, does anyone have an English fan cast, quote unquote, of any of the yokai from the most recent anime adaptation? And they basically say they've been they've been really looking forward to this podcast. And uh, I have been, too. Hi, Marion. How's it going? <laughs> hey, Marion, uh, if you're listening. Um, but I, see, I, I don't know. Like when I when I thought about this question, all I could think was. As far as, like, Nezumi Otoko goes, if I had all the power in the world and I could pick anybody to voice Nezumi Otoko in English, my first thought was Joe Pesci. Oh my god, that's what... Oh. I didn't even know the word fan cast, man. I thought it was, like, a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, who would you cast as the voice of these characters, an English voice actor? You know, we brought up an Always Sunny comparison earlier. Nanny DeVito is Nezumi Otoko. I could very much buy. I, I didn't, oh didn't want to say it because so many other people use Danny DeVito as, like, their dream voice. Well, for, or, a yeah. non, for a non, you know, obvious answer, like, we also drew comparisons to, like, how Nezumi Otoko is, like, the Donald to... Um, you know, Katara's Mickey, but to yeah. go to the Looney Tunes perspective, like I think Eric Bauza, that the modern day Daffy Duck, like he'd be a great uh, as Miyatoko. Uh, you know, I also got a lot of Cartman-y vibes from Miyatoko. So you know, what, Trey <laughs> so Parker as Miyatoko. Why not? I think he pull it off. And uh, it also gives me a lot of Don Patch from Boba Vibes, like Kirk Jordan. I would like as him. 
he's he's doing everything these days. Let's just cast uh, Mads Mikkelsen as Madama Ayaji. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Uh, and then Marion also asked just kind of a general question, and they want to know if any one of us has had a particular supernatural moment that made us sweat or more willing to believe in the presence of what you can't sense physically. Oh. A brush with the supernatural. No, I lived in a haunted apartment in Japan, so you can read about that in my book, You're in Japanese Coast. So I'm, <laughs> I, I'm what I call myself a supernatural agnostic, and that I believe I don't... I'm not going to say absolutely exist, but I don't discredit the possibility either. I think I'm the same way, yeah. Like, I, I have I have friends who, like, you know, tell me about all sorts of these kinds of things all the time, and I'm just like, well, that's really interesting. Like, I've, I've never really had an experience like that, you know, uh, me, myself in particular, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's easy for me to in during the day to say I don't believe it, and then at night when I'm in bed trying to go to sleep, I suddenly believe it harder than I've believed anything else in my life. <laughs> you start hearing all the creaks and cracks around your house, like, oh man, what's the, what is that? I, I have stories, especially my grandmother's ghost stories, but I again, I regard them as fun stories, and I have experiences of things I can't quite explain, but that doesn't mean they're supernatural, so I can't really rule them one way or the other, but uh, they are unfortunately too long for a podcast format right now <laughs> i mean i have had like times where i've been like kind of creeped out but i don't know if i attribute that to the supernatural but like i'd love to believe in the the mysticism and world that there's like some things we can't explain some supernatural phenomena mm-hmm. so like i keep an open mind yeah yeah same I, I would say one day we will all be able to go to conventions again and stories will come out at the convention bars as, you know, things <laughs> tend to do. So, yeah. That would be pretty cool. Looking forward to that. Just a comment from uh, the Ladybug Man, our, our good friend Buggy, who's been on the show before. But he says that uh, Kitaro holds a special place in his heart. A Japanese student who stayed with them over the summer gave them a bilingual copy as a gift. And it was one of the first volumes of manga that they ever own. And they actually provided us a picture, which is pretty cool. I love that. That's awesome. My old Kitaro bilingual editions. I love them, and they're also the bang because of those damn translations. <laughs> they're just haunting me through the years. <laughs> yeah, cat chick. That is a very lovely story. I, I think, uh, Joey, you mentioned earlier and also added, uh, Buggy, that uh, these are also incredibly hard to come by. Yeah. I, somewhat recently, Deb Aoki asked about, like, rare manga volumes you have, and I looked it up on eBay, and they're selling for, like, I think, like, $100 or more now at this point, or people are listing them for that. So, yeah, I'm, I feel very – it wasn't nearly that expensive, but it was still pretty hard for me to get a, get copies of those. So I feel a little envious uh, and think it's really cool that this person, like, it's the first thing that they had, and they got it as a gift. Um, yeah, my, I had a Japanese exchange student live with us and, and then I went and lived with their family for a bit. And when I was there, they gave me some bilingual editions of Sazai-san. And that was the first time I'd seen those, uh, series. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's a very valuable thing, not in price wise. I mean, uh, experience wise. <laughs> yeah. I think we have like two more questions here that I think we can kind of group together. And, uh, I think, uh, the first of those I'll put out there from at I'm the manga man or I'm the mango man who asks uh, any chance of new Kitaro manga coming out in English. And Zach, if you can't answer this or anything, that's understandable. You know, there's always a chance. That's one of the things where I feel like, like there is a chance, but I think like right now I feel like I've, and someone else said this earlier and it was exactly what I feel like. I feel like we've done enough Kitaro for the moment. 
and mm-hmm. I'm going to shift gears and do some other music stuff because he's so much more than just Kitaro. And that was kind of the promise I made to him when he was still alive, is that I would represent him as a whole artist. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so awesome. Somebody will get back to Kitaro. But if it was up to me, you know, if, if and, you know, let's like, I don't actually, I'm not in charge of the publishing. It's all around for me. I make suggestions, but that's all my suggestions are. So, like, I would do probably Stop Bay the Kappa next if we were going to do another, you know, series like that or something other than Kitaro. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then uh, our very last question comes from our good friend Allison at Meowth900, who says, this series is really fantastic. How do I get more people to read it? (laughs) Yeah, just give them a book. Yeah, just talk enthusiastically about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, before Kitaro was ever published in English, like, I was just trying so hard to get to drive up interest in Kitaro um, and drive up interest in music Shigeru. And there are ways to do it, especially for fans to do it, like, hold panels at conventions, you know, um, call, do podcasts and invite me on. I mean, it's this sort of thing. <laughs> like, seriously, though, it's this sort of thing that helps build up and drive interest in it, you know. And I was really fortunate, like, early on when I first started doing this and had no idea what I was doing, you know, people like that virtually reached out to me, like, do you want to go on ANCAST? I had never even heard of ANCAST in my life, so I had no idea what, I, what that even meant. So it's just people who are excited about it share your excitement, and that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I have a very general theory, which can apply to Kitaro, but I think more broadly applies to approaching classics uh, in any sense, be that film, games, manga, whatever. And that is, while it is very important to educate and to, uh, you know, really impart the importance of something and to impart, uh, like, how influential it is, I think the other part of getting people to try something that you like that might be a little more old, you know, a little older... Uh, is you don't necessarily want to make it sound like medicine. Like you, you, yeah. ha- you have to be seen enjoying it. You, you have to make it fun. And I think if people see you actively enjoying something, there is that natural curiosity of wanting to engage alongside you. So I think just be as enthusiastic as you want to be. Educate, but also make sure that you're just seen having fun with this and showing all the reasons that it is enjoyable. Yeah, I feel like I've heard you say, Casey, on another podcast, like, talk about why something is cool and not why it's important, you know? Exactly, yeah. Don't make it sound like homework. That is my running philosophy, I will say, on many podcasts. And yeah, it's... I love that because it's like, I use the same... I use the same idea, but I use a different metaphor, is that no one should... It shouldn't sound like it's comic south. It's not the thing that you want, that you don't really want to eat, but you know it's good for you. You know, and you sort of like grunge through it. So, yeah. Once you've hooked them on the fun, then you can fill in the other important facts. But you got to get them first. That's why I love like seeing people cosplay Kitaro, you know, at conventions and stuff. I mean, stuff like that is always going to drive up interest. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, just kind of speaking in a broader sense, I think, you know, that's part of the reason why people like like myself or Casey, you know, like to do sometimes like to do like you know, threads on Twitter or whatever, and, you know, just kind of put out there, like, you know, moments from the comments that we, uh, comics that we like, uh, and, you know, uh, I mean, even, you know, Casey and I have a very, uh, sheer difference in, like, the number of people that follow us or whatever, uh, if you look on Twitter, but... I'm baffled by that, too, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, uh, that's just to say, you know, I, even I have, you know, people who sometimes run into one of my old threads and be like, hey, where can I read this? And I'll be like, mm-hmm. oh my god, I've, I've gotten somebody into this thing. That's amazing, you know? That's, oh, yeah. that's the best feeling in the yeah. world. It's amazing. If you clearly tag, like, 
a post about something like the title or the author and all that stuff is in there somewhere in that thread, people will find it years later and you have no idea how, but they do. <laughs> Another thing I think you would do if you have the talent for it is do fan art. Like someone mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that's one of the piece of guitar art that Craig Thompson did, you know, and like that spawned interest, you know, um, and there's lots of artists out there that absolutely love Kitaro. If you do fan art of it, that gets shared all over the place. And, um, mm-hmm. No one's going to want to see my fan art, I can promise you. <laughs> no, we we are truly in the golden age of fan art. Like this is like it has never been more accessible. It has never been easier to share or go viral or just just draw what you're passionate about and find at least a niche group of people that are as passionate about it as you. Like it it's amazing what you can do with fan material now. No, seriously, yeah. Um and hey, something something that I might suggest if I could be indulgent for a bit, you know, that can help Kitaro and us. Uh, share this podcast that might be pretty cool um (laughs) (laughs) be pretty cool okay i will fine (laughs) oh man um no i think that's about it Um, i don't think we have any stragglers anywhere else or no we only had questions on twitter so i think we about covered them all or otherwise touched base on them in our conversation Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- thank you, everybody, for sending in all your questions. Uh, the-, the tweet that we sent out got a lot of uh, engagement, and I was very yeah, proud of that. It was really awesome. Well, we promise to keep this to two hours. We're coming up on, I think, hour two. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, that's the Manga Marriott's curse for you. I'll yeah, there it is. To 1.5 times the length. Oh, man. Let <laughs> me tell you about a two-part Dragon Ball podcast that I <laughs> was a part of. Six hours of Dragon Ball. That actually might have been collectively six hours, and I'm really sorry yeah, about that, Joey. <laughs> no, but look, we, we, we did three hours, and we still all felt like, oh, we came, we came up short. We really could have focused on this or that. Or, <laughs> no, no, so. um, but seriously, seriously, guys, thank you so much for coming on and spending this much time on Kitaro with us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, but, you know, before we let you go, uh, we want to let everybody know where they can find you guys and your stuff, because uh, we love everything you do. And uh, once again, big thanks to Zach for coming on. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Zach Davison, as well as uh, visit his website at ZachDavison.com. And, you know, buy Kitaro, buy anything translated by Zach. I think that that's a given. And then I guess, uh, Joey, if you want to go next. Sure. Uh, I'm at Joey Weiser on Twitter and Joey Weiser Comics on Instagram. The Instagram is more focused on, uh, you know, just sharing art and work that I do. The uh, Twitter account is kind of all over the place talking about comics and cartoons I like and things like that, as well as sharing my work. You can read my comics, uh, the Merman graphic novel series, as well as Ghost Hog and Dragon Racer. Dragon Racer is my newest book, and, and Ghost Hog is definitely, if you're interested in yokai, uh, it's a very uh, Kitaro and yokai-inspired work. Um, and I have a new mini-comic called The Littlest Fighter, which is available for purchase on my website and will be debuting uh, in November. And you can buy a digital version of that, too, if you don't want to deal with shipping and all that stuff. Um, and if you order my books uh, from my website, you, they'll all be signed. You can also order my graphic novels through Avid Bookshop, A-V-I-D, like an avid reader, and those will be signed as well. Mm-hmm. Please check out all of Joey's comics. They're very good. Thank you. And then, uh, last but not least, Casey, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Article. I post about things I like, and sometimes people like that. 
<laughs> yeah, I have no professional connection to comics or anything, uh, but I will say uh, you should read everything you can by Shigeru Mizuki, because that means that they might publish more of these things in English and I can read them too. Uh, yes. You, you should read everything uh, that Joey Weiser has drawn so that Joey gets to make more comics and I can read those too. Uh, and, uh, you should, yes. <laughs> and you should listen to episodes of uh, this beautiful podcast, Manga Mavericks, so that I can come on it again in five years uh, and we can all <laughs> hang out and talk about great manga. Uh, well, hopefully in five years, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put a letter in your yokai post and you'll come running, especially if it's for uh, maybe Delicious in Dungeon. That's just like the first thing that I thought of at the top of my head. Is there a monster in your comic? I'll probably come and talk about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, but no, yeah, seriously, thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, we Both of us have been really like looking forward to this, and I think this was a really great episode. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And I think, Lum, I think it's about time to uh, end this yokai adventure and go into our community shoutouts. Yeah, I think the frogs and crickets are all cheering our accomplishment of talking three hours to Kataro. So I think it's, yeah, it's time to retire for the day, dig some trash out for dinner, chill on our soup bowl bats. So, me nada oto o yoge. again to Zach, Casey, and Joy for coming on the show to discuss Kitaro and Shigeru Mizuki with us. It was quite a blast to visit and discuss this classic series by one of the most interesting, great manga masters there ever was. And we definitely want to return to the works of Mizuki in the future as well, and have you guys back on again as well. So... It was a real, real treat. But, yeah, like, if you guys came out of the discussion wanting even more background and, like, more chatter on Mizuki and on Kentaro, well, I have uh, quite a few good recommendations for further reading and for podcast listening for you. And all of them happen to feature Zach, because he's made the rounds over the years, like, venerating and apostolizing Mizuki. Well, first article I'll point you to is a piece that Zach wrote in the aftermath of Mizuki's death on the comics journal called Life and Death to Shigeru Mizuki, which is a really great profile in history of Shigeru Mizuki's life and his career as an artist, and I think really puts his career in a really great historical context, and it's just, in general, a lovely tribute to like what made him such a unique artist. And as I mentioned before, Zach's done many great podcast interviews over the years for a specific conversation focused on Kitaro's The Series. Like, he did a great interview with the Majide podcast, specifically focused on Kitaro in terms of, like, more conversation on yokai and yuri as, like, categories of monsters in Japan and the history of those definitions of those categorizations. He did a great interview with the Japan Station podcast all about that. He also revealed a fun horror story of like when he lived in Japan and he had 
rented this haunted house and was living in there for a while with him and his wife, which is a really fun story that, you know, we didn't discuss on this podcast, but you should absolutely listen to because it's quite wild. He had like a, he was living in a real life haunted house for a while. That's really cool. And there was this great all-encompassing in-cast interview where Zach ended up talking basically about his entire translation career, which includes like Mizuki and Kitaro, in addition to his other work doing Satoshi Kon and Matsumoto, as well as just general thoughts and conversations on translations, on yokai Japanese culture, on how like Kitaro is like remembered in Japanese culture. So definitely check that out for like a lot of combo on that stuff. It's like great podcast interview as is the recent pop czar interviewed zach earlier this year that they brought him on to discuss totem on a guitar and they got uh, into a lot of tangents but they still touched upon a lot of good conversation on these old folk tales like how they evolve and change over time how mizuki's interpretation of monogatari rips on and builds upon the previous written versions by yanagita and others and the history of that book and the preservation of Japanese yokai culture and folk legends over the years. And it's a really cool conversation and look into that. And that's my Katara-specific shout-outs I want to give this time. I have a few other seasonal or topical-related shout-outs I want to give. I recently have been getting into Pop Arena's Goosebumps monthly videos. Like, I've been keeping up with them ever since I discussed the travel. Now I've been, like, kind of going back to the beginning and watching through them. And they're really good uh, analysis of fun pick-apart of those books that, you know, there are nostalgia favorites for many, but some hold up more than others, some don't hold up at all. And I think Greg does a great job of just analyzing storytelling and often at the end of the videos he'll make recommendations or like here's how i would have revised the story to be a little more thematically coherent and a little more successful as trying to do so i thought that's great and especially i've been enjoying his walkthroughs and kind of analysis of the goosebumps tv series which he's been doing doing his miniseries or the better part of this past year every now and again where he's just checked in on specific episodes of goosebumps Supposed TV show to show like how different episodes would approach the material, like how you know they really put their best foot forward with their adaptation of the Haunted Mass story, but then don't like really do as much for the basement one, which was more of like a mid season episode. How they kind of invented their own thing for the Monster Blood episode, the second part of that. Like, it's a really good look at, like, the Goosebumps we show and how they chose to approach and adapt science material in the way that it was successful at times and unsuccessful at times. I'm looking forward to the final installment of the uh, miniseries where he's going to look at the original trilogy that the TV show made. So I'm really looking forward to that episode. And Greg also did a great episode of another, like, classic horror TV show slash franchise uh, that from you know, probably our generation's childhoods, and that's Are You Afraid of the Dark? And he did a great, like, kind of sample platter episode analysis on the episode The Tale of the Bookish Babysitter, which he goes into a lot of great analysis about, like, the history of this kind of literary elitism of, like, why books are venerated more than other forms of media and why that's kind of not necessarily completely valid to just elevate books inherently as an art form or art forms of media, then looks at how this episode and 
it's like overall message of like, hey, you should read more, kind of falls apart in its how, how it frames the entire situation and the fact that it is reliant on like a visual medium to kind of bring up to life like this idea of like, oh, you need to read more to simulate your imagination, but then here's like an episode of TV that is trying to dictate that to you and it doesn't quite work. So I'd like Greg, as always, finds a really interesting point of analysis whenever he does like these episodic reviews for the Sample Platter series. And this one was no section how he like was able to touch upon kind of this broader conversation of kind of how literaries or how books are oftentimes is more of an inherently like intellectual medium than other pursuits and then like kind of the follies of some of the attempts to convince kids to read in kind of like a didactic kind of lecturing way that don't quite work in terms of like intent and like efficacy so really good videos from paparina here and i also want to shout out uh, going to back to podcasts, the cartoons that curse recently launched their Patreon. As you know, like I, we might have shouted it out before, but they're a great pod that goes through a lot of adult animated sitcoms, like season by season. And now on their Patreon, they're going to be focusing more on movies. And they started off as they've often like leaned and riffed and built up Shrek. And it's a really great time. And Shrek is. What is Shrek if not a Western yokai, you know? So if you want, <laughs> so if you want more Western yokai chatter, like definitely uh, talk about, uh, listen to them talk about Shrek and their drunken, uh, wild stupor. Cause they also got, you know, they, they're do they're doing drum conversations on these. So it's a, it's a fun listen. So definitely check out their Patreon and check out that episode of Shrek. I second that. Uh, I listened to that episode too. And, uh, you know, j- just like most podcasts, they went on a ton of tangents, but I actually thought they went on a lot of like really interesting conversations, such as like their thoughts on all the Toy Story films, which I thought was like a genuinely really good conversation, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love animation chatter and these guys have some great conversations on them. And my last shout out and I don't often get the chance to shout out a lot of like political or political history podcasts on the show, but because of Mizuki's like longstanding activism and the fact that he navigates like themes of anti-war, anti-imperialism, anti-nuclear weapons in his work, like I thought this would be a great uh, time to shout out the American Prestige podcast, which is a podcast done by two foreign policy writers, analysts, like they work for a lot of different publications and they do the show together where they kind of critique and talk about the latest developments in mainly American foreign policy as per the title of like criticizing the idea of American prestige or American respectability in the political foreign political landscape. But in particular, two episodes that I think are very thematically appropriate to Mizuki's work, uh, as discussed on this episode was they had a great episode recently on the history of the U.S. nuclear program, talking with two you know, researchers, experts on the field of, like, the history of the U.S. nuclear program and, like, how it has been sustained over the years, just as increasing amount of, like, just excuses to find, to justify and find reasons to keep it around. And, like, how, yeah, like, it's a very odd conversation of, like, when are we going to disarm or de-escalate and dismantle these if like we're also like other countries are also encouraging themselves to arm themselves it's like a good 
with how Mizuki navigates like anti-nuclear teens and especially especially points out criticism of the US military's appropriate use of nuclear weapons. Like it's a really good conversation to understand the history of the US nuclear program and like how it has kind of been maintained throughout the Cold War now into the modern day. And also considering Mizuki wrote a comic about Kataro going to we fight in the Vietnam War against uh, American imperialism. Like, the American Prestige Series is doing a great, like, kind of uh, side series podcast, um, Patreon series on Vietnam from the Vietnamese perspective. Basically looking at the Vietnamese War from, a, like, a Vietnamese history perspective rather from the perspective of, like, American history that is so often taught to us. So they really focus on, like, what were the conditions that led to the Vietnamese War and then the U.S. entries in the war from the perspective of, like, Vietnamese history and history of that country. And I think it's a really fascinating piece uh, to explore, like, how that conflict came about in Vietnamese from the Vietnamese Vietnamese ground for perspective rather from the oftentimes we are taught, you know, the foreign perspective of the U.S. entering into that war and making that war about us. So, yeah, like, I think the, those are great shout outs to, uh, again, focus on topics that Mizuki himself explored in his work. So I want to shout that out. And that does it for my shout outs for this episode. But Colton, you also had something to mention? Yeah, um, something I really wanted to shout out is, um, you know, uh, I actually got into a new podcast recently, who also has their own Patreon now called Dancing is Forbidden, which is an Aqua Teen Hunger Force podcast, actually, where host Ronnie uh, goes through an episode of Aqua Teen every week, you know, kind of recapping the episode, uh, going over, you know, what he thinks is, you know, funny or good about it. Um, and kind of also, uh, he, he goes to great lengths to like put research into the show and also kind of like the time and place that, you know, uh, whatever episode he's covering is airing. Like, you know, he likes to cover like, you know, what was the, like popular music back then, uh, what video games were coming out around then, and, like, what shows were even airing on Adult Swim and uh, on whatever night, whatever episode of Aqua Teen he's talking about. And so far on his uh, Patreon, uh, he's also doing, like, a bonus Patreon podcast where uh, he'll pick an episode of whatever's from that Adult Swim lineup from the episode of Aqua Teen he's covering, and he'll cover it on the show. Uh, he's done two episodes so far, and he's done, uh, basically, one of them is on an episode of The Brack Show, and one of them is on an episode of The Oblongs, which I haven't listened to yet. But uh, I personally, I like The Oblongs a lot, so I can't wait to listen to that soon. And yeah, I, I just think it's a pretty it's a pretty good Aqua Teen Hunger Force podcast. And uh, it's kind of what I need after uh, finally going over all the show on HBO Max. Uh, and yeah, if you're a fan of Aqua Teen, uh, I would highly recommend it. I think it's a very good show so far. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm always down for more... Like adult swim chatter. So yeah, this Aqua Team Party sounds so up my alley. I definitely gotta check it out. Oh shoot, you know I forgot one community shout out that Oh go ahead, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I I get, I just missed this on my list. But yeah, Gaijin Goomba is like Yokai like Gaijin Goomba does great videos exploring, you know, Japanese popular culture as through, you know, Japanese popular culture that gets brought out of the West, like exploring like historical influences and stuff in different pieces of media. And of course, he has done like a great series called Yokai Hunters, where he points out like characters in a lot of Japanese media that's like based on or inspired by different yokai. So a lot of different Pokemon, Digimon characters, all sorts of media. Like he 
pinpoints and uh, shouts out like the yokai influence and the original yokai a lot of those characters are based on so those are great videos to learn more about yokai and he's done a lot of specific videos on Kitaro as well the training 18 series discussing specific episodes that had like really pointed social contrary so we mentioned that logan paul uh criticism episode like he did an episode on that he did an episode on the ghost train episode that you know when the anime was reframed more around like a critique of Japanese working culture and overwork so like yeah he did a lot of really great videos on the Katara series and on yokai so yeah definitely want to shout that out if you are interested in diving deeper into like learning more about different yokai in their history and also more on the Katara anime too all right but yeah i think that's gonna about do it for community shout outs and uh again really want to thank everybody for listening to this episode uh again can't stress it enough we were really looking forward to this conversation and i'm glad we had it and i hope you guys enjoyed it but um i guess before we head out just to kind of give you guys a heads up about what's coming up next i think it is safe to say uh that on the next episode uh we are going to be talking about the original parasite manga from hitoshi iwaki and yeah i'm really looking forward to talking about parasite i've seen the anime but i haven't read all of the manga so this will be my first time kind of going through the manga and uh i won't say who just yet but we are going to have uh even more special guests on that episode so uh I can't wait to have that conversation. I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. Yeah, it's been fun to reread and revisit. And yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to our convo with uh, some really cool guests. All right. Uh, but until then, uh, it is, I, I think it's about time to end the show and let people know where they can find us. Uh, Lum, why don't you go first? You can find me at LumRomiyasha on Twitter and it's LumRomiyasha variety of places like Animation Revelation and Analyst. Wherever there is a LumRomiyasha, that's you can find me. You can read my reviews on allashcom.com. I got a lot of books coming in, a lot of manga coming in, a lot of reviews going out. Look forward to more on there. That's always you can find the other podcasts I do, including Manga Inside Movies, a show where we primarily talk about anime movies, and Hashtag Lum Squad, the show where me and my good friend co-host Andrew A.C. Yoshimura talk about the wonderful and wacky world of Ruka Takahashi's Yurusei Atsura. We have an app and a lot of fun going through his, his new release of the manga, as well as the anime films not that they're out on Crunchyroll. And finally coming out on DVD and Blu-ray from Discotech. So definitely uh, look forward to more episodes of Lums Guy. We had a lot of fun recording them. And if you like the art that I make for our podcast, the art animation illustrations I make in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colty. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of other podcasts besides this one that you could find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, over there, I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment, uh, including past projects, uh, as well as uh, all, basically all my guest spots that I've had over, uh, you know, over the years, uh, for all the years I've podcasted. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in anything else I'm, I'm involved in, again, coltoncorner.wordpress.com, go to the podcast page. You'll find all my other stuff there. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks and the podcast, basically you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at allcomic.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we're at the $2 tier. You will get access to uh, select early episodes of the podcast, basically depending on when we have them edited. If we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it goes out on our main feed, we'll put it up there. 
but again, that also does kind of depend on our schedules and uh, how much we have at any given time. Uh, so if you want more reliable content, you should sign up for our $5 tier, where we basically post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. And hopefully by the time this is out, uh, if not soon, Doc and I are actually going to get back onto our Manga Mavericks book club read-through of the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. It's taken us a little longer to get back to it than I would hope, but we are actually almost done with Saint Seiya. We are going to be covering volumes 25 and 26, and yeah, basically in about another month or two, we'll be done with Saint Seiya. We're almost done reading through Saint Seiya. Uh, It is my first time going through Saint Seiya as well as Doc's, and it's been a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to seeing how that series ends. And yeah, uh, you know, just just go ahead and go listen to that, as well as all of our other bonus podcasts. We have a ton of great bonus material that you can listen to that we've been uploading over the past couple of years at this point. Uh, again, you can find all this at more at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, it really helps us keep the lights on. And it's really the best way for you guys to support us. So we appreciate any patronage you send our way. Uh, but as for all comic and everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us at manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. We love getting emails. Um, what are your thoughts on Shigeru Mizuki and Kitaro? What are you reading at the moment? Um, are there any series or manga or whatever that you want us to talk about on the show? Um, you know, email us anything about manga or the podcast or really anything. We love getting emails and we love reading them on the show. Again, that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, um, or basically any other podcast platforms. We're on a bunch of them at this point. Um, but especially on Apple Podcasts, it really helps the visibility of our show if you leave us a rating and a review. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys on the show. And, uh, you know, any feedback we get, positive or negative, we would love to use it to basically make the show that much better. Um, But that is going to be about it for this episode. Uh, This has been episode 180 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 181. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.